even if you try to teach them how you want to be treated, they ain't listening because they have no empathy. They don't care. You're merely an object to get them what they need. I've heard you give examples, which I always find very powerful because it really is like almost acknowledgement like, oh, okay, Dr. Romani said that if they say this, it's a red flag. So I love being able to identify very specific red flags. And you have said, which I would love to talk about, a quote of yours, you said, benefit of the doubt is code for enabling. Um, mm -hmm. So is that you should never give anyone the benefit of doubt? Can you explain that and break that down for me? I, I, listen, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the rule of threes. You know, you, you can try something three times, and if if after the third time it, it's it is you, know, you keep giving someone a lot of the benefit of the doubt, that's on you. That's on you at that point to say okay, you know. But if you're at your fifty fifth benefit of the doubt, you're now an enabler, right? Right. But you know, yes, one time a person may be late, okay, and they may even tell you, they may even text you and say, my my whatever, my work meeting went long. I'm going to be thirty minutes late, so they communicate clearly, or maybe they don't. And you might say to them, hey, you know what? when you're going to be this late because my time is really challenged it would actually be helpful for me to know i might have actually gone back to my car mm -hmm. run an errand then they show up 30 minutes late again and then like ah oh, they did tell me they live on the other side of town so you could say listen it seems like being late's an issue so maybe what we should do since you have all this traffic let's always budget mm -hmm. this one hour time and so maybe we can shift the time you they show up late again at that point, you're saying, this person's always late. There's no more benefit of the doubt. At that point, you have the conversation with yourself and say, I'm either going to go and accept the lateness, and if the lateness doesn't work for me, this isn't going to work. So then you're having, that's what I'm saying, is that the benefit of the doubt maybe once, mm. maybe twice. Then there has to be communication on what is happening here. The person may say, I'm never going to be on time. I'm telling you that right now. That's I'm. That's not my groove. So if we could set things up that I show up when I show up and you might say, no, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't respect my time. That's fine. Game over. I think the problem is people want it the way they want it. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, I don't, I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and I want them to be on time. I'm like, that's not an option. They're not going to be on time. And I think everyone almost becomes a child. Mm -hmm. They want what they want. Wanting what you want is fine. Wanting it from something that get that can't give it. Now we're back to the drawing the water from the empty well. And I think it really then it's the responsibility we have to hold for ourselves. And this is where the ancient issues people have of feeling they don't deserve more. So from childhood, people might have gotten the lesson that you don't matter. Um, we don't value you. You're not important. So when that trails us into adulthood, we think like we don't deserve someone to show up on time or who am I to question somebody on whether they're late. But this resentment is growing up in us, in, in us. It's okay to ask for what you want. And then you have to accept that you may not get it from this particular person. Oh my God. That's so true. And like, I, that's like one message that I remind myself every single day. It's communicate, but just because you're communicating doesn't then mean that you actually nope. get it. But there is nope. some form of, well, if I've said it, then it means it ha you have to acquiesce. And like that's, and, no. it just doesn't happen like that. Not. Yeah. No. And especially with someone narcissistic because they're not listening. <laughs> so that you're saying, how do you identify these red flags? Once you've communicated about something three times, mm. okay, and it has been dishonored, devalued not listened to or invalidated that's it you're done and if after you're staying at the table after that it's then time to recognize what are this is why i'm saying education about narcissism is so important mm. because for many people they don't get it so now a person's out there saying three times i gave someone the benefit of the doubt 
three times this we had the same issue. Now I know there's there's no there there. And but again, it's then it's that work of devaluation and un- understanding that about yourself that you might say, I don't deserve better. That's your narrative. Mm. That's you needing to go to therapy. That's you figuring it out. Because if the being you deserve someone to be on time, if that is what you value, you deserve that. If you're staying in it because you think you don't deserve better, then if you've now you're in a cycle because especially someone narcissistic is never going to change that. And so that's where I'm saying that doing the deep dive on yourself becomes really, really important. And the fantasy always has been for the child when a person's a child my parent is going to end up stepping up and being a good person when the parent never turns around. And in adulthood, we play that fantasy out in our adult relationships. I want them to turn around and it doesn't happen. And so it's really about giving people the knowledge about what this is. So once they're in it, they can say, "Mm, this isn't working. Because with a narcissistic person, the earlier you leave, the easier it is to extract, right? If it's after just a few dates or a few times, then you're sort of like nobody has that much skin in the game. The problem is, Early in the game, the narcissist doesn't like to lose. So they will try to suck you back. They'll try to hoover you back. And that is very seductive. So this person who wasn't on time is all of a sudden sending you flowers or sending you a lot of text messages or doing and saying exactly the things you want because it just turned into a game for them. It's not about them, oh, I heard this person, I want to be on time. It's more of, oh, I'm not going to lose at this game. And they'll suck them back in. And they'll go back to not being Oh, my God. So you just opened another can of worms. So then how do you identify that instead of going, oh, well, they heard me and now they're making an effort? Because that's what I would, I think, maybe even revert to initially. It's like, oh, I've I've voiced my concern. I've said that, you know, they're they're not um, on Mm. time. And it's okay. Tell me. No, Lisa, I'm pushing back because you communicated with them three times and said, please be on time. And they did not listen to you. Only when you said, you know what? This isn't really working. Time oh, really matters okay. to me. It's you leaving. That that wasn't you talking got that led to the it. change in behavior. It was you leaving. And for narcissistic people, they're actually very sensitive to abandonment. Mm. And what happens is that sets in a very unhealthy cycle. Because people say, oh, if I'm not getting what I want from this person, I'm just going to threaten to leave. Well, that's an insanely toxic relationship mm. cycle. You're leaving because they're not listening. And now you threaten to leave, and now they're on time. It's not because they're listening to you. It's because they don't want to lose. And, oh my God, the, so yeah. strong. and then it becomes a vicious cycle, right? Because then you've noticed that by threatening to leave, they then give you attention and love, but it's not for the reasons you're hoping it's for. Oh, my God, that's such a freaking massive breakthrough. Okay, wow. Like, you've just hit me. I just need, like, a second to regroup. Um, there's another thing that you said. I'm so loving this, by the way. There's another thing that you said, which is, um, that wasn't my intention. And the funny thing is, that's the strategy I now have been using for the last few months when I'm apologizing to someone. I'm literally saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. That wasn't my intention. Because even... I need them to know that I didn't want to upset them or hurt them. But then I heard you say, if someone says it wasn't my intention, then that is a big red flag. Okay, it's a red flag when they're not showing any care and concern for your feeling. So if somebody gets very upset, you've done something, okay, whatever it may be, and they are upset, and you say, I, I for no matter what, you always want to start with empathy, always open with empathy. That's a rule people should hold and say, I hear you, you're, I can hear you're very upset and I'm so sorry. And, and even worse, I can see that I was, I, I'm responsible. You know, it was our interaction that's, you know, that's contributing to this, you know, please tell me how you're feeling. 
always give that person a chance to share. Because what we do is we're so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with other people's discomfort with us, we tend to cut that conversation off because we don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. But they need to say it. And if they feel safe and we're holding space for them, they'll share it and say, I felt hurt. I felt unheard. I felt devalued. And you'll say, I am so sorry. I want to tell you it wasn't my intention. However, that doesn't matter because you're hurt. You see the difference Mm -hmm. between then somebody who just opens up with a person says, you hurt my feelings, la, 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 la. And then a person says, well, that wasn't my intention. Uh, You see mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So it's, it's, it's like it's sort of these words get their power in terms of placement and whether or not the person's building empathy in there. Mm-hmm. So if you're really, because at that point, after you've heard someone and held a safe space for them and empathize with them and really took it in as hard as it was to do that, they have now, they've soothed a bit. They recognize you are safe. Mm-hmm. So when you say that wasn't my intention after all of that, they'll say, no, 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 I get that it wasn't your intention. I understand that. And they feel safe enough to share an emotion. That means that relationship can now go to the next level of intimacy because it's safe. Mm-hmm. But if you shared something with me, you say, hey, Dr. Romney, I'm, you know, I'm hurt because da, 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 da. And I openly and I said, well, that wasn't my intention. I've just shut you down. Mm. I've not opened the door for you to share. And that's what narcissistic people do. They shut the lines of communication through manipulations. That wasn't my intention through gaslighting. There's nowhere to go at that point. So the relationship lacks intimacy because there's no sharing. How on earth do you have that discussion with somebody? So let's say you do say that and they shut you down. Um, As the person on the other side that's talking to a narcissist, how would you continue a conversation? You don't. <laughs> you don't. I mean, see, that's the thing. There, there's no workaround on this one because now they've shut you down. They're basically saying your emotional world is of no importance to me. You're of no importance to me. Where do you go? And I think the whole the, the thing that I'll never get behind is people saying, no, 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 there has to be a way forward. No, 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 there's not. Because at this point, you're disrespecting yourself staying in this conversation. And it is just going to get more abusive. So there is no way forward. So I want to talk about when you first start meeting someone, because you said it's easier to kind of identify. um, And I don't know if you actually use these words, but it's a little simpler to identify. Maybe you're not as close as you can, um, let's say, pull away from them. If you're dating, you notice certain characteristics. But I heard you talk about charisma. Now, charisma to me is intoxicating when someone's around you and they're charismatic like i i love being around them but i heard a (laughs) you're shaking your head i want to read this quote that you said that i love charisma is like heavy perfume or cologne that someone wears when they don't take a shower it's probably covering covering up something else talk to me about that because i like to kind of think i'm charismatic but i don't like to think of myself as being you know um a narcissist or you know very heavily perfumed so here i mean here's the thing with charisma it is a um, charisma. Think of it. Think of the letter U upside down. Okay. When a person has no charisma, let's face it, there's no interest. There's right. a. It's sort of like it's a lot of work. I get that. Then there's that mid-level charisma, right? It is a somebody who is a, a good listener, a good talker, but they're not sucking all the oxygen out of the room. You know, somebody who's at the far end of that U, the other side of the curve, when it's too much charisma. It feels like you're at a performance and it's exhausting. But I will say, especially for people who survived narcissistic relationships, I'll say to them, you know what? 
you don't get to play in the deep end of the charisma pool. Like we're not going to swim on that side of the pool because those folks more often than not are a problem. And I wonder is all that big charisma, why the need for the attention? Why do they need all eyes on them? Why are, are they, are they letting other people talk? Cause there's people who can be incredibly charismatic, but also very engaging. But one of the challenges with charismatic people is they have a, an ability. They, they don't look at people. They look through people. So even though they're looking, talking, you're, they're listening to you and they're looking at you and they're talking to you, it really does seem that they're literally looking right through you to see if someone more interesting is coming mm. through the door. That's a real signature piece of charisma. There's what's the next better thing than the person who's in front of me. And so, you know, charisma to me, I always say charisma is like an amusement park. Nobody's going to an amusement park every day, but it sure is fun <laughs> on the day it happens. So I always say, keep the charismatic people around for about two weeks, have some fun, have a fling. But this is probably not a long game because the charismatic people, that is a very almost a cultivated pattern that's designed to draw attention. And in the rarest of cases, charisma accompanies the empathy, kindness, respect. Charisma is also um, conflated with something we call extroversion. Extroverts are people who like being with other people. They draw their energy from other people. They like crowds. They like gathering. That's in contrast to the blessed introverts. And the introverts do not get their energy from other people. They're they introspective. They spend a lot of time in their head. They actually prefer their group small. They're loyal as heck to those people and absolutely lovely. But you put them in a crowd of 500 people and they're actually going to look like a deer in the headlights. They're not enjoying themselves. Not because they're anxious. It's just not what they enjoy. And I'm going to be frank with you. I'm an introvert. Yeah, me and too. I do not like crowds of people. Very introverted. Like on any given day, I would rather be home either with my child or with my partner or with a small group of friends, but not with groups of people. They and, and when I spend time with groups of people, I'm as depleted as if I've been up for 24 hours. Like when I give a big speaking, like I speak to sometimes thousands of people mm -hmm. at seminars, I'm exhausted. Even though it's on Zoom, I'm exhausted yeah. when it's done. So that, but can a person be a charismatic introvert? I think actually a charismatic introvert might be where char charisma might be a little bit more healthy mm -hmm. because then they might be able to sort of be engaging and really sort of connect and all of that. But charisma is a tricky pattern because we always assume, Lisa, that it's, it's a good thing. And I think people have to be discerning about charisma. They have to say, is this charismatic person actually listening? Are they, are they, you know, are they participating in an equal way? Are they expecting everyone to fawn over them? Like charisma is like wine. You got to know what you're drinking. <laughs> I love that. Do you think then people who are more insecure are drawn more to charisma? I think everybody is vulnerable to charisma because we've been taught it's a good thing. Mm. What we've never been is that maybe it's not very how often has somebody said hey you're dating look for the least charismatic person or look for somebody who doesn't have much charisma that's not what anyone is telling anyone when they're dating when you think about online dating platforms people are a little more charismatic and look more like that they tend to get more of the hits right so i think that we have so overvalued this quality societally that i don't necessarily think it's that insecure people are drawn to them i think everybody is drawn to them. And I will tell you, I'm a rare person. When I meet a charismatic person, I actually have no interest. I walk away. I find them depleting, exhausting, troublesome. Um, I really will look for that person who seems much more centered, less attention seeking, and I'm always a winner. You know, it's always a better conversation. Mm. God, that's so powerful. I actually heard you say though, that um, people, uh, narcissists can't change. So unhealthy or what we call pathological personality patterns are by definition rigid. 
Okay. So these are the, and the reason these patterns are so rigid is because people with these rigid personality patterns like narcissism are not introspective. They don't look inwards. People who are narcissistic because they're so unaware of what the driver is, this deep unprocessed insecurity and they're dysregulated. They're very impulsive. So what many narcissistic people will say is you'll sometimes get, and this is what confuses people in these relationships. They know what's right and they know what's wrong. So they'll throw one of their tantrums and they'll be very cruel and mean and reactive. Afterwards, they'll know they did the wrong thing. But that reactivity reduced their tension, right? It, it worked for them. The narcissist is like, oh, I feel relieved that I got out. But everyone else has been devastated by their tantrum. They're like, okay, I feel better now. I let it out. I'm sorry now. And how many times are you going to have someone blow up on you and then say, I'm sorry? And the resistance to change is because the reactivity of the narcissist is almost like a reflex. They basically want a world where they're like, can't you just let me have my tantrums and then I can say sorry afterwards? <sighs> and you have to say, that's not how the world works. These people are hurt. And everyone's not designed to be your pacifier. You're not, I mean, nobody gets mad at a six-month-old baby for crying because it's a baby. But in essence, a narcissist wants to be treated like a six-month-old, have their tantrums and still have people snuggle them afterwards, right? And that's not how life works. So that's what I mean by they don't change. Some people who are narcissistic will look up and say, okay, I get it. This pattern is toxic. I am not behaving well. Mm. I am not being a nice person. I've lost the love of my life. I've I've become isolated from my family. I've lost my job. They know something's up. And then they might come into therapy. And the therapist, like me, would say, okay, what we need you to be is very mindful. You need to be aware of how you, you're impacting other people. You need to breathe and be present with them. And they'll be like, what? <laughs> I have to care? I have to care about their feelings? Ugh, this is exhausting. And they're actually kind of put off by what's being asked of them but they know they need to do it. It's almost like, I hate to say it, it's almost like trying to lose weight. Someone's like, oh, in order to lose weight, you can't eat sweets and you can't eat hamburgers and you can't eat french fries and you have to eat this. And they're like, that's what it's going to take? And you're like, yeah, you can't keep eating this way. And they'll say, I don't know about this. And so they stay heavy or they stay at an unhealthy weight. Okay. Same thing with a the narcissist. They're like, if this is what it's going to take, mm -hmm. a lot of them say, I don't think I can do this. So the narcissist does not recognize the need for change until stuff falls apart for them. Okay, they lose their partner, their kids aren't talking to them, they lose their job, they publicly are shamed for something, they, they don't, until that point, they're going along their lives just sort of making a mess of everything. Mm. And so then they get called out and there's real consequences. Like sometimes they get called out and there's no consequences, so they don't care. Mm. Consequences might be going to jail, consequences might be a divorce, consequences may be losing their money, consequences may be a whole number of things. And so those consequences feel real to them, especially if they're public consequences. I'm no longer married, or I no longer have my partner, or I no longer have my money. And then some of they do have to start taking the deep dive saying nobody's around anymore, like I'm losing everyone. And then for and even then, those many narcissists are much more likely to blame other people for their failures and problems than take responsibility. So they're still blaming. This is my wife's fault. This is the world's fault. This is this person's fault. This is this. This is this. At some point that they're going to say they blamed everyone, nothing's going their way. And a small percentage of people with this pattern will say, okay, maybe I am responsible for this. And I don't like what my life looks like right now. You tell them what it means to take responsibility and that's actually something that feels incredibly uncomfortable for them. But all change to a healthier place 
from an unhealthy place is uncomfortable. Hmm. Whether it's a person dealing with anxiety, whether it's a person dealing with depression, whether it's a person dealing with panic attacks, they have to go to therapy. They have to tolerate the discomfort. They have to talk about the uncomfortable stuff to get to a healthy place. It's no more different than with narcissism. The challenge is, is that the narcissist is very, very resistant to do introspective, insightful work. Yeah, and what you just said, so it's basically, it's what's happening to them. So they've lost the people so that they're feeling empty. So they think, okay, maybe I need to do something about it versus, oh my God, I can't believe I just hurt the love of my life. Correct. Got Correct. it. That's very powerful. Very powerful. Um, and I've heard you somewhat um, evolve your data on um, the, the stats between um, how many men and women are narcissists. Obviously, it's a very hard thing to um, identify on like the data, but I know that you were initially saying it was 80-20 and then you said over time you're starting um, to, to realize that now it's actually becoming like 70-30, potentially 60-40. What do you think that is? Is that just us understanding it more? and it displays differently in a man or woman? Or are you seeing that more women are becoming narcissists? I think men are more socialized for narcissistic traits. We devalue emotion in men. They are mocked and made ah. fun of if they're vulnerable. Like So the way boys are raised, the way men are raised, they're always going to be more vulnerable. Aggression has a very different... Like if a man dominates that's considered more normative it's not normative for women so all of these qualities like you know we devalue empathy in men um we the men have more privilege so they're going to be more entitled all of that means that just from a socialization perspective you're always going to have more male narcissists there's no two ways about it however interestingly as women do get in some in some places of their lives some a little more power some women do have privilege those women are going to be more vulnerable to being narcissistic it's just that for men they tend to have more of the overt symptoms of narcissism the the big grandiosity the big arrogance the dominance the control those are sort of very male kinds of patterns women may have more victimized passive aggressive patterns so they may not be as in your face but they're still narcissistic and so it, it's not because we don't, it's not a word we use with women as much, but oh, they're definitely out there. And I think that sadly, as people get more power in a society, there's a greater vulnerability of it. But there's also, it's also a very developmental pattern too. Narcissism doesn't spring up when somebody's 30. It's something that was developed mm -hmm. through childhood. So girls and um, female children are going to be as affected by this as, as male children. And so we're going to see that those impacts of parenting are there, but it could very well be that as 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 girls go through um, go through their childhood, they have more opportunities to develop the emotional muscles because it's more part of their play. Mm. You know, whereas for boys, it's, if they're crying, they're made they're a sissy, you're a loser. Boys don't cry. If a girl cries, it's actually permitted, and so we actually create we have to create more permission for men to be emotional. That would actually be a big part early, young and early. Parents should not chastise a son for crying. We should create spaces for boys to cry. That's a big socialization piece that's linked to, to sex and gender that we really have to pay attention to. And we're not good at that. So all of that's also playing a role in this too. Wow, that's so powerful. So thinking about a young boy being grandiose or over the top is almost rewarded mm -hmm. for it. And if a mm -hmm. girl is, she's told to not do it. So over Correct. time, as we become adults, um, yeah. we're, the narcissist male is just, almost forgiven, but the female has yes. somewhat, um, 
you even said passive aggressive. So it's very different behavior, right? Than being overtly um, overpowering, overbearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very, so a woman would not have been, those, those traits would not have been shaped and socialized right. in her in the same way. And so, um, you know, and, and listen, there's a whole new world of conversations that's going to come up with, with people who are trans, right. Who were, were, who, who grew up socialized to a, to a set of gender roles and they themselves were struggling with that. And they're saying, no, 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 you know, that, that like, please allow me to be that the gender that's right for me. So we're not, we're just beginning to explore these issues in trans people and queer people. So, you know, it's, I think we've always viewed this through a very heteronormative kind of a lens. Mm. So, but when we think of it in that traditional lens of boys and girls, men and women, is that definitely that when a woman, somebody's viewed as a woman is speaking more um, assertively, clearly and in a commanding manner much more likely to be pathologized for that, be called aggressive, <laughs> to be called unattractive. And then if a man is speaking in that way, he's viewed as a leader. He, they'll use the word assertive there. They'll view him as authoritative. But remember, these are developmental traits that come out of insecurity, that sometimes come out of trauma. Boys, girls are both differentially affected by this. It's just how we value emotion and things like that in the face of it. That might mean that more boys go in that direction than girls assume that somebody is either with a narcissist or has mm -hmm. someone in their life. Um, I know that you have almost like certain rules that you advise mm -hmm, people. Mm -hmm. So there's one phrase that you use, which is um, don't give your psychological passwords to them. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me about yeah. that? So it's actually brilliant. Again, I always I make sure that so many of this, so much of this is accumulated wisdom. It was actually somebody I've worked with who said to me, instead of calling it gray rocking, why don't you call it firewalling? Somebody who works in the tech industry. And I thought, interesting say more and we talked about it and her husband's a big tech guy and and we find i said this is you're absolutely brilliant because when you think about a firewalled computer right it's very restrictive on what it lets in right it'll say this is this is a virus don't let this in and it's also very restrictive on what you let out like mm -hmm. you know and you'll even ask you are you sure I say don't, part of firewalling is you, I wouldn't give you all my passwords. I adore you, but I wouldn't give you all my passwords, <laughs> right? That's if you did. Right. Yes, exactly. And so we don't hand, we're so, we're literally more protective of the password we have for some game on our computer than we are with the most sacred parts of our psyche. I'm like, what? You know, I mean, that doesn't even make, but that's, it doesn't make sense, but everyone does that. They just hand it over. And so this idea is that you wouldn't just give away your normal passwords don't give away your psychological passwords your deep vulnerabilities your because i'll tell you why they'll use them against you narcissistic people will always weaponize your vulnerabilities so a lot of times early in a relationship people open up and they share their vulnerabilities something that's really really sinister about narcissistic relationships is during that love bombing phase they'll look at someone and say tell me tell me the thing you least like about yourself and you're like, ooh, we're sharing. They're putting that in some sort of evil vault in their brain that then when either you're in the devaluing cycle or the discarding cycle, you're having an argument, they'll pull that vulnerability out. It could be about anything. It could be about body image. It could be about something that happened to you in childhood. It could be about your family, a dream you have, and they will use it against you. And for a lot of people, it feels like the air has been sucked out of them. The most vulnerable thing that a person could share, they've shared with them. And it's like, in fact, in, in a cult structure, it's often called collateral. 
Like it's like I'm, we're gonna get, we've got to get something from them so we can almost blackmail someone oh. down the road. It's like that, maybe not at that level, but it's it's that ability to say, now I've got something on you, so I know I can hurt you. Mm. And so that's what I mean about don't hand away your psychological passwords. Don't give away those most vulnerable parts of yourself until someone really gains that trust. People might be sitting there saying, well, doesn't that, are you telling people not to be vulnerable? Oh, absolutely not. I'm saying learn your people. Again, it's that two sets of ways of engaging in the world. And it's about taking a moment to get to know someone. If red flags are coming up, pay attention and hold back. You will get to the vulnerabilities. If this is a healthy person, you'll get there but you don't need to get there in the first week. But I think so many people want to be heard and seen and understood that they rush to that moment of like, let me tell them everything and now we're in love. And I have watched people be destroyed having people take those vulnerabilities they shared with someone and having them be used against them in all kinds of terrible ways. Yeah, I very much believe that vulnerability should never be weaponized mm -hmm. in Absolutely any situation. Not. Mm -mm. But I do understand that other people accidentally may use a vulnerability mm -hmm. in a heated moment and then regret it. So is it how they then handle it afterwards that right. dictates which? Yeah. Well, I'm not asking anyone to here to be superhuman. You know, we've all done it. You've done it. I've done it in a moment, you know, said something and say, oh, my goodness. Mm. It is that very rapid attempt at making amends, doing the reparations and not doing it again. Mm. Right. You see what I'm saying? So you can't just keep doing it because one thing narcissistic relationships often consist of is the apologize cycle. It's like the rinse, lather, repeat, like, I'm sorry. Uh, and they do it again. I'm sorry. Do it again. I'm sorry. Mm. No, I mean, I I'll give you one, you know, saying I never should have said something like that. Then don't do it again. Mm. And when they do it again, it feels like then I'm sorry. It's just like a get out of jail free card. Mm. Like, OK, I'm just going to use this again. And so it really it, it it's. It's the intent and it's how quickly the reparations take place that a person immediately says, I had no, no place doing that. And I gotta tell you, Lisa, in some cases, there are no fly zones. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm a parent, for example. You say anything to me, you go after my kids, we're done. <laughs> we're done. And when I work with clients, I tell them, it's okay to have those no fly zones. It's because some say I'm being too extreme, right? I'm like, oh, do I really shut someone off? You, I said, you're okay with doing that. If they went to a place that feels sacred to you, that feels untouchable to you, and it went there, that's abuse. That's a violation of a primal boundary. It's okay to say never again. Mm. Does that apply to everyone in your life, like your parents as well as a partner? It gets tricky there, Lisa, because I think, especially if you had a narcissistic parent, one of the most painful legacies of a narcissistic parent is that they do. They will use those vulnerabilities against a child. One thing I've classically heard with narcissistic parents and their children is they go after appearance. They go after weight. They go after how someone looks. They, um, because it is a superficial personality style, right? And they often want their child to be a reflection of how they want to be in the world. And if it may not be straightly appearance, it might even be things like an ability. It might be things like soccer or school or whatever it may be, right? And so in those cases, the parent knowing that the child struggles with whatever will actually use that as a way to manipulate the child or get the child to do what they want. And then the child sort of lives in this sadness, like, or they'll try to be what the parent wants them to be. The kid will say, oh, if I could play tennis really well, then my parent would pay attention. And maybe they're just not a natural tennis player. And then the child really goes out and tries to hit a tennis ball or whatever. And then the parent's like, oh, really? 
Like, you want me to waste my time playing tennis with you? Like, this is way below me thinking like, oh my gosh, this poor kid's killing themselves to get you to notice them. But this will fast forward into adulthood. They will continue to do this to their child in adulthood. Parents are tricky. Narcissistic parents are tricky because a lot of people, for example, may love one parent and really have had a difficult other parent. Some people will feel as though really had a difficult parent, but I love my siblings. I love my grandparents. So, th and those other people in the system don't want you to distance from that one parent. I always say to people, once you identify the difficult people in the system, you can still be in that system, but you've got to be mindful. So it really does about maybe limiting the time, finding a time away from the narcissistic parent to be with those other people, like your grandparent or your sibling or your other parent or whatever. And also to recognize you were the child, they were the parent, they dropped the ball. It's not your job to go back there and teach them. And I think a lot of people continue. I've seen 50 year old people still be hoop jumping to get or, and, and trying to show off for a parent, no different than a six year old trying to juggle in the living room just to get their parents to notice them. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stop. But the hurt that a narcissistic parent can inflict on an adult child is just as potent as if that person was five years old. Ooh, have you noticed the correlation between people that have had narcissistic parents that then go for a narcissistic mm -hmm. partner? Yeah, there's an incredible vulnerability. And I talk about this. I talk about people who have sort of are narcissism magnets mm. without knowing it. Like, And one of the things on that list of magnets is exactly what you're saying. Having come from a system characterized by this, there's a couple of reasons. One of the most intoxicating, tragically intoxicating things a person can experience is familiarity. When we say, ooh, we have a magical connection and I'm having a deja vu, I kind of put my head in my hand saying, no, 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 this is not good for you because the things that are familiar to you are actually quite toxic and poisonous. Mm -hmm. And that sort of familiarity of, for example, it's, it's something we call working through. I couldn't win over my narcissistic father but I'm going to win over this guy, ah, right? And yeah, so then yeah. they go right into that same cycle. And because it's so familiar, it's almost hard to get that, that, that view to say, this isn't healthy for me or to get out mm -hmm. because the whole life almost becomes this activity of trying to get this, um, to trying to do all the things. I'm going to jump through the hoops. I'm going to win this time. And a lot of times people will convince themselves, like if I can get it right here, then it'll be okay then I would, have, I would have, you know, sort of figured out what I needed to figure out from childhood. But the fact of the matter is, this adult narcissistic person is going to treat you as badly as your narcissistic mm. parent. And this time it's going to get uglier because it'll be things like the gaslighting and the manipulation and the rage. And for some people, that inner dialogue, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I, um, I have no right to be doing this. Who am I to be pursuing my dreams? I need to stay in my lane. All of that stuff. Mm that kind of inner dialogue, when it gets reinforced by a partner, people actually really get stuck in relationships. That's what I was going to say. You just listed a few. Um, can you repeat those actually? And what mm -hmm. are the things that essentially interesting? It never dawned on me that this is the language we say to ourselves, I'm mm -hmm. not enough. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. Stay in your lane. Mm -hmm. Is that the same language then that a narcissist would also say to you as like a red flag? Absolutely. Like if they say to you, stay in your lane. Absolutely. They say, stay in your lane. You should, and you know what it is? It's, it's a, it's more, they do it more masterfully than that. They plant just enough of a seed of doubt that you're the one who ends up cultivating that seed. Mm. So they'll say things like, really that job? Like, 
okay, you know, I get why you'd want to do it, but you sure that's not you getting ahead of yourself? So it's just enough like, okay, go ahead and do it, but you sure about that? That's the kind of thing that they'll do. So now this thing you thought you could do, already they've put this new seed of doubt in there or saying, you know, things like, well, I don't know, other people at that job, they seem to have gone to some really fancy universities. Like, it's cool that they want you, but you sure about that? And then for many people, that's when they'll give up on themselves. Yeah. Can you actually truly be happy in a narcissistic relationship? Because not sharing your vulnerabilities with someone, not listening when they give you advice because you don't trust them because you're worried that they're trying to, oh, are you sure you should go for that job? Like, I really want to be able to take my husband's advice for true advice. Mm -hmm. And so not being able to share that, not being able to, um, I've heard you say that um, um, not to share your wins with your no, narcissist. not your wins, not your losses, and not your vulnerabilities. Don't share any of them. Okay, so I want to go down that actually not sharing the wins, but um, if you don't mind, like, can you actually then truly be happy? Such a, it's such an, it's almost a philosophical question, yeah, isn't it, it right? Really is. I don't know that a person would ever be fully happy or satisfied or nourished in that relationship. Mm. I have seen people, amazingly so, figure out workarounds where they derive, I don't know, joy from their kids, their pets, their hobbies, their jobs, their other supports in their world, if, if provided the narcissistic person in their life isn't super controlling. Mm -hmm. Obviously all of that gets very difficult if the narcissistic person has someone on a really sort of a short tie to say like, you can't do this, you can't do that, and really isolates them from that world. When that dynamic is in place, I do not think it's possible to be happy. But if you're in a situation where you're kind of able to do some things that matter to you, I've seen people sort of carve out moments of happiness, but if this person's a day-to-day -day fixture in someone's life, not so much. I mean, I do think it takes a toll. And I've worked with people who've been in these relationships 30, 40, 50 years, and it hollows them out. Is that inevitable? I do think it's somewhat inevitable. How many times are you going to be invalidated? How many times is somebody going to w walk around in the world and feel completely unmirrored in what is to be a loving relationship? And especially if they aren't able to build up those other spaces in their lives. Some people figure out the workarounds and they recognize like, okay, this is not what I would have loved for myself or wanted for myself but I will try to make the most out of what I can. And then they take almost a very existential point of view. This moment's mm. beautiful, I'll be mm. in this moment kind of thing. And so they do their best at sort of deriving the joy from a given moment here. And it's, it's again, that's a sort of high level existential work. It's hard to do because you look around at other people and they are in love and their partners are appreciative of them mm. and they are in a loving mm. space and their experience has absolutely no resemblance to that. They feel very alone. And keep in mind, Lisa, most people don't get this. I've worked with so many folks who they go out and they're like, finally, I figured out why this relationship's so difficult. Mm. My partner's really narcissistic. They're, they have no empathy, they, they, the whole laundry list. And people are like, I don't get that. Like you look good in pictures together or it seems like you're both at the dinner together. And so it's this people not getting it. Mm. Like, well, it can't be that bad. Can't you just explain to them what's going on? <laughs> no, because they're not listening. And that's hard. Imagine a child, a child growing up with parents who never see them, who never hear them, when I say see them, like notice them, mm. never hear them, never have empathy for them, never have interest for them. A lot of people grow up like that. Now jump that into an adult relationship. It takes a tremendous toll on a child. 
as an adult, you're not immune to those same effects, especially in what feels like it's supposed to be your primary close relationship. Mm. Yeah, God. And how many of people, though, actually in those 30, 40s, because you said some people stay like for the rest of their mm -hmm. life, still try and change them? Because I, I love it when you're like, you can't change you can't. him. But how many people are just like, yes, but if I only did this, and mm -hmm. is that how much of that is why mm -hmm. people stay in those relationships? Well, there's, there's kind of a standard, there's a short list of reasons people stay in the relationships. Hope, fear, guilt, and lack of information, okay? Hope that it'll change. We've thrown that hope out. Yeah. Fear of being alone. Some people say that the devil I know is better than the angel I don't. Like they're saying, I know this. I know how this works. I know our respective families. I have a routine. They're scared. They're scared. They're scared of living alone. They're scared of... Um, having their role in society change or scared of no longer perhaps being in a marriage or something like that, then there's guilt. Remember, not all narcissism is just the big exploitative, grandiose person like kind of holding court and sucking all the oxygen out of the room. In many cases, there's what we call vulnerable narcissism. And that's more of this sort of sullen, resentful, angry, victimized form of narcissism. So instead of the entitlement coming out as, hey, I should be the VIP in the line, the entitlement comes out more as, nothing ever works out for me. I deserve so much more because I'm such a smart person. It makes me sick to watch all these other people succeeding when I'm so much smarter. See, that's a different feel of entitlement, right? Mm -hmm. And no, that vulnerable narcissistic style actually takes a tremendous toll in relationships. But when people want to leave those relationships, they feel really guilty because there is this sort of very anxious, depressed feel. And then there's lack of information. The number of people out there are saying, well, maybe if I just learn to communicate, maybe if we go to a couple's retreat, maybe if we do this, maybe if we do that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're about to spend $100,000. I'm telling you for free, this is not going to change. Make your decisions accordingly. I'm not never telling anyone to leave. I'm saying mm -hmm. this. It's like a person moving to a really hot climate and wanting to wear a down parka. I'm like, that's <laughs> not going to work. You're going to have to get a new wardrobe. Like the whole, this is not what you think it is. That's it. Oh, God, I love that. And I've actually heard you say, speaking of the guilt thing, um, that do never empathize with a narcissist. I'm going to put I'm going to push back on that. Ah. OK, because I believe in empathy. I think empathy is something that we are losing in this world quickly. And yet it is so crucial to me to to actually saving this world, literally down to climate change. Empathy is everything. Right. The biggest thing in fact we're right now it's actually one of the videos in pre-production we're working on right now is this idea of people feeling like they have been through so much in multiple narcissistic relationships that they're they're starting to lose their empathy across the board in fact there's a name for it it's called uh, compassion fatigue mm. that we save that more for healthcare providers psychologists that kind of thing after a while there's so much empathy you can put out unless there's some coming back in right but compassion fatigue is a little different than just feeling like I'm empathied out. Like I am being treated badly every day, 20 times a day. I don't believe truly empathic people lose their empathy. I think people get worn out and they get sad mm -hmm. and they, um, they feel more isolated from people. But I actually do believe we can have tremendous, in fact, we must have tremendous empathy for narcissistic people. Oh. Otherwise we lose, our, we lose the best part of ourselves and I'll be damned if somebody who's toxic is going to be the reason the most beautiful part of myself gets turned off. 
And so, and I feel that for everyone, do not ever pawn that off. But empathy doesn't mean being a sucker. Mm. Empathy is understanding whatever happened in your story that brought you here, I am so sorry. And I really hope the path forward takes you to a place where you can work on this. I really do, but not on my time. Again, another brilliant suggestion sent by people who watch the channel and they, they were basketball fans. And I'm a basketball fan too. I think it's, a it's such an elegant sport. And that moment, the hang time is that moment when a player is coming up to the hoop and it almost feels like they're flying right before they put the, the ball in, in, in the basket. And th sometimes hang time feels like it's really long, like it's almost eternal if you're watching it. And they were using hang time as an analogy of that moment you're suspended and trying to figure out like, what is this? Like, is this person really toxic? Is this really narcissistic kind of personality style? Like what is happening here? And it's when you're continuing to give second chances, or like maybe I'm reading this wrong or what what's going on here. I don't want anyone watching this thinking it's black and white. Like one day I'll go up this, it's a process. I always say that there's the click moment. There's a moment in your mind you're with someone and you're like, okay, I'm now a little uncomfortable. It's often a red flag, but it's a little more than red flags. Mm. My, by now you've probably seen five, 10, even 15 red flags. And it is, it's like an audible click. You're like, okay, now I'm uncomfortable. What do I do? At the moment of the audible click, people are still saying, okay, maybe I'm reading this wrong, but we're starting to step out of the room backwards. Like we're creating more and more distance. Like, okay, this isn't cool. This is not an affiliation I want. This is not a relationship I want, whatever. Slowly start stepping away. That moment of starting to identify it and then get out, that's what's being called hang time. Here's where it gets tricky. If you are the one who decides to leave a narcissistic relationship, I can guarantee you it's going to go badly. It'll always go badly. We don't always realize this, but people who are nar who have narcissistic, difficult personality styles struggle with abandonment because it means they've lost control of the narrative. So if somebody tries to leave them, all hell's going to break loose. All hell's going to break loose. If they decide to leave you, they're just going to go. Mm -hmm. But if you decide to leave them and they don't want you leaving, you are in for the fight of your life. And this is why it's important to identify and get it out of it, get out of it early. The mm -hmm. earlier you get out, the less the harm. But if you're in for a while and they don't want out, they, it will be an absolute mess, which is why hang time's an interesting moment because for some people during that suspension, they're hanging in there saying, how big a mess is this gonna be when I leave? So some people stay because they're so afraid of the disaster that's going to ensue when they leave. And when I work with folks who are about to start, for example, embark on a divorce from a narcissist, I say, I'll tell them, for as bad as you think this is about to be, it is going to be 10 times worse. We are going to battle. And I will not, I will not soften this for you. And every single time, whether it's a marriage, whether it's workplace, whatever it is, it is it, almost like these people look shredded when it's over. And a couple of them have said, I'm so glad I'm out. But had I really known how bad this was going to be, I don't know that I would have had the courage to do this. In order for us to be able to identify so that when we either go in a relationship, start a relationship or continue a relationship, we just do it with our eyes wide open. And so where I would like to start is for you to break down the four types of narcissists. Uh, narcissists. I think there's actually more than four. Oh, so yeah. you're, gonna, you're asking for more than you bargained for. Um, 
So there's sort of the classical grandiose narcissist. And this is often what we think of as sort of the textbook, arrogant, charming, charismatic, confident, you know, sort of really holds the room. And while initially they're incredibly enticing, right, because they're so much larger than life, they can often be quite successful before long, probably in anywhere if you're dating them between four and 12 weeks the blush is going to fall off the rose kind of thing. And it's going to be that they're much more, you'll see that they're getting bored with you, that their superficiality really becomes problematic. They are very contemptuous and dismissive and invalidating, largely because they're so insecure. We go then to the covert narcissist. The covert narcissist is much more vulnerable, sullen, angry at the world. And instead of the big, arrogant entitlement, what you tend to see more of is it's an angry victimized entitlement like the world never gives me what i want everybody's against me everyone's out to get me and so there's just sort of it gets heavy and tiresome but initially covert narcissists feel very anxious like you want to rescue them then there are the malignant narcissists the malignant narcissists are probably the most dangerous of the narcissists not only do they have all the usual qualities of narcissism the lack of empathy the entitlement the grandiosity all of that they also are very exploitative they can be paranoid they're sadistic. There is a there is a much more deliberate cruelty. You're more likely to see sort of, if not physical violence, a lot more emotional abuse in these relationships. People feel very menaced and unsettled. You might see more coercive control here. The fourth kind of narcissist is someone we call a communal narcissist. The communal narcissist cares very much about being viewed by the public as a as a savior or a rescuer. I'm rescuing animals. I'm doing, I'm making this important documentary. I'm so important. What I do for the world is so important. And so the world often, they get their validation. The communal narcissist has all the usual stuff of narcissism, but they get their validation by being viewed as a do-gooder or a humanitarian or something like that. But they're actually just as interpersonally difficult as any of the other narcissistic people, but people will often miss it because they're so, they look so wonderful. There's the neglectful narcissist. These are the narcissistic relationships where you're literally not even seen. It's as though unless they need you, it's almost like my coffee cup. I'm not going to notice my coffee cup unless I need my coffee. But otherwise, I'm not going to pay attention to it all day. They tend to view people through that lens of seeing them as conveniences and objects they turn to when they need them. They almost have very little need for people unless it's forwarding their cause. And people in these relationships will literally feel as though they're invisible and completely unseen. Then there's the self-righteous narcissist. The self-righteous narcissist actually initially seem really moralistic and loyal. Whether that moralism comes through like religion or commitment to like the cause and there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do things, they're incredibly judgmental of other people. Self-righteous narcissists tend to live very well-ordered lives. So they'll mock the way other people eat, the way they dress, if they didn't go to the right school, if they don't live in the right place. And so people in relationships with self-righteous narcissists feel like they're always the 12-year-old child who's being scolded for their bad habits. So there's actually more than just Yeah, four. that was so amazing. I have so many questions. So let's even just take the last, the last one. As you were describing it, I also think of it as like, wow, that's also the behavior of someone that's extremely insecure in themselves. So they're putting someone else down because they're insecure. But would you say that if someone's insecure, they're directly a narcissist? How would you separate the two and go, wow, they're a narcissist or they're just wounded, they're insecure, and so they're doing that to um, protect themselves. Okay, so everybody's insecure. 
I have, I've, I can count on one hand the number of human beings I've met on this planet who are just simply secure in themselves. Mm. Because here's the bottom line. Secure people don't lash out at other people, right? Mm. Secure people will say, I know who I am and I know what I stand for. And they know they're not always going to get it right. They're not always trying to overcompensate. They apologize when they wrong, they're wrong and they never deliberately, you know, again, lash out or attack another person. They have empathy. So the, you know, I always say it's the difference between the pathologically insecure and the conventionally insecure. Oh. The conventionally insecure is all the rest of us, right? <laughs> right? It's the people who have, we all have wounds. And those wounds are often where we're not graceful or we get really stressed out or we get upset. The difference is, is when you're conventionally insecure and you say the wrong thing, maybe you bite mm-hmm. someone's head off. Maybe you are... Um, you respond in a way that's very reactive and unkind. Maybe you don't check in on someone's feelings. A conventionally insecure person will detect that rather quickly and Mm. say, I should not have said that. And will attempt to make amends very quickly and say, you know, if I, let's say you and I had an argument and I snapped your head off and I call, I'd call you back and say, Lisa, what I did, I'm so sorry. That was not your responsibility or your problem. I had a tough day, but that wasn't your problem. And I'm so sorry. And you know, again, my excuse is not even meant to be a way to get out of this. I'm telling you about my day, but at the end of the day, I hurt you and I'm sorry. That's what a conventionally, healthily insecure person would do. A pathologically insecure person, that ends up getting coupled with all this narcissistic stuff, the lack of empathy, the entitlement, the grandiosity, the validation seeking, all of those narcissistic defenses, they protect that insecurity that's not processed. Mm. A conventionally insecure person will say, I know what my insecurities are. I'm insecure about my weight or the amount of money I have or my job. I know that about myself. And so I know that when I'm in certain groups of people, I'm not at my best. And a conventionally insecure person might even make decisions accordingly saying, "Uh, I don't know if I want to go to your fancy party tonight. Like that's not my, that's not my crew. I don't feel good. And they'll make their choices accordingly. Right. So that a conventionally insecure person can be reflective. They can be empathic. They can be aware of what their wounds are. They can they can make amends for when they get it wrong. You see the difference? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I agree that narcissistic people are wounded. I will never disagree with that. In fact, more than a few of them have had traumatic backgrounds. But that doesn't is that's not an excuse for your present behavior. You don't get to say I'm wounded, and that's your get out of jail free card. It doesn't work that way. I understand that you're wounded. Go do the work. Okay, go do the work before you take this out on other people and expect everyone to be your enabler while you lash out at them because of your wounds. That's not acceptable. If you have big, beautiful, incredible, audacious dreams for your online business, but you actually lack the confidence in your ability to then actually make it happen, then I promise you, my homie, and I say this with all the love and compassion in my heart, your company will never get where you want it to go. I've been there, guys. In Growing Quest, I had to face myself every day. I didn't know what I was doing and I really wish that I had Shopify at the time because when you choose to grow your business with Shopify, you have everything you need to make your dreams a reality. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you at every stage of your business from launching your business to hitting a million dollars shopify has got you completely covered and with their incredible magic ai award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout you literally have everything you need to make all of your amazing businesses dreams a reality and that's exactly why i adore and love shopify if you're serious about growing your freaking badass business and you want to build your confidence and have faith then shopify is here for you so go over 
right now and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash lisa, all lowercase guys. Again, that is go to shopify.com slash lisa right now to grow your business no matter where you are and what stage it's in. One more time, that's shopify.com slash lisa. You won't regret it. I'm going to be utterly honest. There is little more damaging to your confidence than feeling weak and helpless and just struggling to get the care that you actually need from your doctor. And trust me, guys, I unfortunately speak from experience because when I was struggling with crippling, crippling gut issues about nine years ago now, it took me years, years to find a doctor that not only could I connect with, but a doctor that actually would listen, wouldn't gaslight me and actually take my words and my experience as truth so that they could actually eventually help me heal and not just to give me another freaking pill and then push me out the door. But now, my homie, you don't have to struggle to find the right doctor for you anymore and that's thanks to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is an absolutely free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and then instantly book appointments with them online. And with ZocDoc, you can actually filter by insurance, location and specialities to find the perfect fit for you, not for your friend, not for anyone else, but for you. Plus, on top of that, you can actually go and read verified reviews from real patients to find the doctor that you can actually trust. And typically, wait times for booking an appointment are days, not weeks. Because let's face it, when you're sick, you need to see someone right now. So my homie, do not, I repeat, do not neglect your health. Instead, go over to ZocDoc.com slash Lisa and download the ZocDoc app for absolutely free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Lisa zocdoc.com slash lisa god i love how you break that down because there is sometimes such a fine line it was kind of like what i was saying in my intro where there are really true narcissists and it can be very detrimental to a person if they're in a relationship with them but then there's also the side of people now just kind of labeling anybody that shows one trait of a narcissist so what do you think are misconceptions that people currently have on what narcissism is or how to even identify someone that is So traditionally, a major misconception about narcissism is that it was self-love, that these were people who were in love with themselves and love to look in the mirror. They even look at the myth of narcissists and how he fell in love with his reflection and all of that. Nothing could be farther from the truth. They don't love themselves. In fact, they despise themselves more than the rest of us might actually not like ourselves. Like they really, really, it is a disorder of, of sort of self-hate, of deep insecurity, of dysregulation and everything is about this fear of sort of their their deficits getting found out, of the world seeing that they ain't all that, right? But they're not in touch with any of this. So you can't play to that and say, I get it. You know, you have these vulnerabilities and they'll say, how dare you tell me I have vulnerability? Mm. So you can't connect with them, right? So the misconception is that they love themselves. Well, that let's clear that off the decks. They, they look in the mirror a lot to play into that validation seeking because they're so superficial. Their emotions don't go deep, right? And because if their emotions went deep, that's too much of a threat to them. So they're very superficial and shallow and everything. So looking at themselves a lot in the mirror is part of that shallowness. Now, what people don't understand about narcissism is it is, it's it's a very, very, you know, sort of insecure primal state 
where the person almost isn't fully formed. They're very emotionally stunted. They don't know how to self-soothe. They don't know how to regulate. They don't know how to be present with other people. They think the rules don't apply to them. And they, they are sort of like a child, eyes a little towel around their neck and runs around the house and says, I'm Superman. The reason a child ties a cape around their neck and says, I'm Superman, is because children don't feel powerful. So they have fantasy play in which they're powerful. But as a child goes through healthy development, they start to realize that they don't have to be a grandiose hero. They just need to be themselves. But since many children never get that lesson, that they're loved for just who they are, that is, there's a risk of then developing into the narcissistic adult, where honestly, Instead of at six tying a towel around their neck, at 46, it's like, look at my car, look mm. at my house, the towel around the neck. You know, it's the same thing. It's just doing, it's different in adulthood because they need to feel like a superhero. And so when we think about narcissism, it's a laundry list of things. It's like I said, lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, superficiality, validation seeking, inability to regulate their moods when they feel frustrated or disappointed, it's arrogance, it's control, it's sensitivity to criticism. Just because someone's not nice to you doesn't make them narcissistic. Right. You need the whole package. And, and at the end of the day, narcissism to me is like a bucket, right? If I need to get water from one side of a place to another, it's certainly much easier to put it in a bucket than putting it in 20 individual glasses. But the, the issue then becomes, as we oversimplify it, those 20 individual glasses are all the different patterns and symptoms. And maybe a person would say, well, actually, I'm calling this person narcissistic because they don't hear me. And, so, and then I say, break that down. Like, is it that they don't have empathy? Like, what's happening before people use the label? Because it is very dismissive. And But I have to say, Lisa, for a lot of people who are struggling through these relationships, it takes a long time before they use the word. They're saying, mm. and now I get this. Like, now I have a word for this. I do. Some people do use it very quickly, and they're probably not using it properly. But the people who've been in it for years and say, oh, this is a thing, and now I get it, then that's a different issue. Yeah, it's really been more of, at least from my perspective, a recent thing that's come on my radar of a lot of people um, just white labeling people as narcissists. So I really like the way you broke that down. Um, what about the people that think that it's somebody else. So it's, they're doing this, they're a narcissist. They called me too sensitive. Cause I've heard you say, if someone calls you, you know, says, um, oh, you're just, you're taking it personally. You're just way too sensitive. It's a sign that that could be a potential mm -hmm. narcissist person. But what on the flip side, if you are too sensitive, um, how do you differentiate between I'm insecure and I am being too sensitive and I don't feel good about myself. And so you say something and I take it insultingly or that person really is gaslighting you putting it on you and it actually isn't your fault well i think that it's it's here's the thing in a relationship everybody has to take accountability okay i really don't ever really like calling anyone too sensitive I think it's that we take in our experiences, like even when I say that a narcissistic individual is sensitive to criticism, maybe what I should say, the better put, way to put it is not sensitive to criticism, they're hyper reactive to oh. criticism. So when they, somebody criticizes them, they'll yell at the other person in a really almost terrifying way. That's very different than somebody who's like, oh, why don't they like me and this and that? And then you talk it through with that person. They'll often, they're really, they'll hit the other person with a wave of rage. So it's a hyper reactivity. Maybe that's the better way to put it. 
I think people take things in the way they take them and that some people will say that it's almost like a, it's like a, a calibration, like a little sensitivity meter we have on us. And for some people, based on their, their experiences in life, they may tend to, maybe it's not even sensitivity as much as you're putting it as personalizing, right? Mm. One of the most important things in the world is say, they said something and I'm having an experience of it, but it's, it's not about me. They said it. And then I have the right to ask them, say, can you tell me more about that? You know, and um, they'll and they might even not think anything of it, but you can ask for clarification. And that's why I'm saying, yeah, obviously in any relationship, in any transaction, if you will, in a, in a, a back and forth between two people, is that you both have responsibility. And the responsibility people have when they talk to each other is respect, empathy, and clarity. Okay? Mm-hmm. So respect, empathy, and clarity every time. So when you're saying something to someone, you want to say, okay, am I saying this in a way that's respectful? Am I actually hearing them? Am I aware of how I may be impacting them? And am I really going, you know, ensuring that I'm being very clear and checking in with them to say, you know, is what I just said, does that make sense? Am I clear? And then the other person has the same responsibility of respect, empathy, and clarity. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, and if you have this sort of basic rules of this, so I think one of the, and where this starts getting challenging is, is that a, a real danger is that most people who are in narcissistic relationships blame themselves. They blame themselves for what's happening. That you, you open, you know, you open the show with, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. Where do you think that comes from? They're blaming themselves for somebody else's behavior. So I'm very, very, very careful to never blame someone for saying, well, gosh, you know, this person was, um, you know, they're, they're really short in their texts to me. And if I was working with someone, I'd say, okay, they're very short in their texts. Can you um, communicate with them and say, you know, I'm say, I'm struggling a little bit with your text. Mm -hmm. They're very blunt. They're very short. Um, You know, and I'm, can you give me some clarity on that? Because I'm sort of experiencing them in an uncomfortable way. If you're that clear and the other person says, what is wrong with you? Mm. Uh, Red flag. But if you say that to someone, the other person says, you know, I apologize. I'm managing three kids at home. I have a lot going on. So, yeah, my texts are short. I can understand how they would feel uncomfortable. So I apologize for that. But I am really busy. Then they've given you context. Mm -hmm. Now it's on you. They've just told you they're busy. Okay. They're telling you, they're giving you some back. They're they're respectfully acknowledging your concern. Mm -hmm. Then it's if you're going to then keep complaining to them. Oh, you know, they just told you they've got three kids and you then you need to move on because obviously then this you need someone who's able to give you something very different. But I think too many people try to draw water out of empty wells. They want people to communicate with them the way they want. This isn't working for you. Then leave. Do not try to transform someone into something they can't be. So what ends up happening is years. They, they tried. They're like, this is bothering me. You're too sensitive. I'm struggling with this. What's your problem? You know, when you said that, I never said that. You know, they're going through 20 years of this. This isn't them misinterpreting one mm. thing. This is them having gone to this 10,000 times. And so at that point, I can say, they're not going to change. What are you going to do? Well, I want them to change. I said, that option's not on the table. They're not going to change. What are you going to do? And so when I say, listen, you can stay. That, that, that's not my call to make for you. That's your call to make mm. for you. You need to put on your big, big person pants and recognize like this is your call. The thing I'm not going to ever support you is like, I'll stay if. There's no if. This is it. This is who this person is. You stay and 
this is how it is. If there's like, let's say you come home and say, oh, I got this promotion. Mm -hmm. And because of this promotion, you know, we're going to be making the same amount. This is great. It doesn't mean like I'm going to have to commute a little longer. That which that's what I was saying. Remember, I think don't share your good news. Mm -hmm. Your good news nine times out of 10 will trigger the narcissistic person's feeling of, of inadequacy. And then they feel shame and then they rage. So is communication, does it always then need to be surface level? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Always? Always, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so where it gets confusing is many people with narcissistic personalities are very smart. They'll know a lot about one thing. Mm. They'll often be well read. I mean, this is what's so, such a confusing style. It's a very high functioning, dysfunctional personality style, mm. right? <laughs> so you'll think you're having a deep conversation with them because you go deep on a topic, right? You have this deep philosophical conversation with them. But it's not really a personal conversation. It's almost like a theoretical conversation. Mm. But then people will confuse that, thinking, oh, we're having these deep conversations. So I'm going to talk about myself, my stuff, my story. Well, that's what they want you to do. Again, they're going to use those vulnerabilities against mm. you down the road. But it's not a deep conversation. Now, sometimes the narcissistic person will tell you what they are saying are vulnerable things about them to draw your vulnerabilities out. Either theirs aren't true, so you've been kind of given a sham vulnerability, if you will, or a, um, a thing they know, and people confuse that because the conversation will go on for hours and hours. Or they'll share a lot about their dreams and their aspirations, right? Like, I'm going to be a this and I'm going to do a that. And it's all very grandiose, which feels sherry, right? Right, yeah. So if I was, you know, or I was sharing, hey, you know, Lisa, I'm excited. I want to do this, this, that, and the other. And you'd say, well, I don't think that's really going to be very possible. That's often what the narcissist. So if you, mm. sometimes if you would ever give them that feedback, they'd lose it. But if you share your dreams, they will often give you that feedback, just as they're going on about their whole grandiose prancing about talking about, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So then you feel emboldened to share your dreams and they'll laugh at yours. I was literally about to ask you, what's the difference about someone just kind of warning you? Like, oh, you may want to be careful. Because sometimes I think people warning you of something is like, oh, okay, there might be some gems in here. They might actually be right. And there might be a warning here of like, oh, you may be careful there. So I was going to ask, how do you know when someone's genuinely cares about you and is warning you because they care about you versus warning you because you make them feel bad? And I think you just answered because you said they laugh at you. They'll, and they'll have contempt for it. Like, oh, please. Ah. You know, versus wow, you know, I've actually worked in that industry. And one thing I would actually highly mm. recommend is that, you know, that's such a cool idea. However, I do have a concern that if you do it this way, and they're good pieces of guidance, even though you might think like what they're saying is probably not realistic, I don't think it's anyone's place out there to piss all over someone else's dreams. Mm -hmm. Now, unless they want to hire a consultant to do that, and then that's a different, that's a financially brokered kind of a relationship, mm -hmm. right? But the idea that um, if somebody shares with you, especially in a new friendship or a new intimate space, mm. you're probably not the person who should be doing that. But it is the contempt that's mm. the ringer. Yeah. That word really mm -hmm. hits me. Um, so what do you do in those moments? Because, again, it just feels really shitty. You just shared your dream with someone. Yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm so excited. And they're like, oh, oh, oh. what do yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. I go back to, like, I want to almost talk to them, like, um, discuss it or like try and persuade them. There's no point in talking to someone contemptuous. If we could convince everyone that your dreams, your aspirations are 
sacred spaces within mm. you. Why would you put that sacred space in front of somebody who's having contempt for it? It's sacrilegious, right? If you want to put it that way. It's a really divine, important part of you. And to recognize they're not able to be present with this. I need to find a more worthy audience. Mm. That this is not the person to, because you will never convince them. Because mm. baiting is a huge part of the narcissistic relationship dynamic. They want the fight. You know, it's, they're prize fighters. They, they know how to fight. The rest of us really kind of don't. Mm. And so they will bait you. They will be like, really? Do you think that's going to happen? Or like, come on. Or like, boy, you sure do like to talk about yourself. When you're not even a person who likes to talk about themselves, but mm. someone else at a gathering um, might say, and I remember this happening to me once in the presence of a narcissistic person. I was at a gathering, and I'm not, I'm not going to be the one who's going to yammer on about herself. It's not my way. And then somebody said, hey, I saw you're doing this cool thing. Can you talk a little bit about it? And I was like, oh, sure. You know, I, I was playing it down I'm like, oh, it's nothing. And interestingly, as I was just about to share it, someone who was quite narcissistic in that room said, oh, here we go, getting to hear from her. And I was hurt. Like, I, it hurt. And I said, yeah, it's not that big a deal. Like, I'm just going there and I'm doing this thing, blah, blah, blah. So I minimized it because I was not at all going to give that, that narcissist mm. was looking for the fight. Later in that event, I got that person one-on-one -on -one and say, I'd love, I, I'd, I'd be happy to share with you what I'm going to do. The big question becomes, Lisa, is in a milieu like that, in a situation like that, do people notice that whole dance, right? Watching someone get shut down by somebody who's so antagonistic. And I went with it. I did not say, wait a minute, this is a matter. I think I was, mm. no, that's the baiting. You don't take the fight because they want you to take the fight. Right. I am I am not giving you the satisfaction because me taking the bait is you getting your validation. And that is not happening mm -hmm. on my watch. Mm -hmm. But that also takes confidence in that moment. To go, yeah, you know what? It's not a big deal. And confidence because you're not demeaning yourself. Right. Right. Like, mm -hmm. you know, having mm -hmm. known you as much as I do now, mm -hmm. it's like I know that you it's freaking awesome, like what you're doing. And but. Because sometimes it's, I think it's dangerous when you say, oh, what I'm doing isn't that big a deal, mm -hmm. right? It, like, right. It is. I think, it, yeah, it can be, and it can affect your self-talk. And unfortunately, that is my self-talk. It's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not all that. I'm not that important. I'm not that valuable. That's very much my, because I've, I've been, I mean, you don't do what I do without having been through, you know, this, this narcissistic territory and being hurt by people like mm. this more than a few times. So my tendency is to not be like, oh, aren't I great? I'm doing all this stuff. So in that situation, when that happened, actually a bit of hurt got activated in me. But at the same time, I have my toolbox and I think I'm not giving this, I'm not taking this person's bait. But I did know that the person who asked the original question was genuinely interested. Mm. So when I got private time with her, mm. I said, I, you know what, now that it's just the two of us, I'd love to share with you more about what I'm doing and just did it that way. Thank you for sharing that because that's actually really beautiful to hear that, you know, even when you know everything mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that you don't get triggered, doesn't mean that it doesn't sting, all the time. doesn't mean that it doesn't actually go. I still get played. Yeah. Girl, I get all, I played all the time. I just got played recently. Like I get played and I get played hard. Like, and I, and I realized like, how, Romani, are you getting played mm. this far into the game? And I know what it is. It's a, when I view somebody as I, for lack of a better way, when I feel bad for them, does that almost pity? I guess maybe that's the word I'm yeah. looking for. When I pity someone, I do tend to keep trying, even when I'm feeling red flags. And that's something I've got to work on because it's actually trying to take care of people I pity has actually resulted in me getting harmed. So I am very, I have to catch that one 
And if I sense that somebody's sort of pitiful to me, I've got to cut bait mm. because that has gotten me into probably most of the really horrible narcissistic situations. Not all of them, but a lot of them. It, they, it pulls for pity. There's something almost pitiful and pathetic and they're trying too hard and they're often not good at what they're doing. Like, I, Cause I was that person, right? I was once the kid who just wasn't always that good. And I would have loved it if somebody, you know, would have had my back. So I think it's, I think we're a lot of us spend a lot of our lives trying to rescue the childlike versions of ourselves, our child versions. And when we see it manifested in someone, I think we want to rescue before we catch ourselves and say, I'm not a child. I'm an adult. I got her. I got my child version. And I don't need to let pity be what drives a human relationship. Oh, that was a ton of bricks right there. Because mm -hmm. again, like I, even myself, I look at him and I go, you know so much. You're so knowledgeable yeah, no. on this subject. I bet you never get tricked by not. I bet you the literally they walk around like a big red dot and you yep. see them. So it's actually beautiful and wonderful that you said that. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I really do think that it's never one and done. Even when we like oh, anything no. mindset, anything no. partners, spotting, no. all of this we're talking about. And I think that that's important to know because mm -hmm. I do worry that some people beat themselves up oh, over going, yeah. I can't believe I ended up with a narcissist mm -hmm. again. I've watched all her videos and I'm still yeah. falling in this mm -hmm. trap. Mm -hmm. So like you even saying that, I think just gives grace to other people. Absolutely. There's so much shame and self-blame in this space. Like the number of folks who've said to me, I am so embarrassed and humiliated that I let mm -hmm. this happen. And I'm saying, Something you're blaming yourself for someone harming you. And so, but people say, I should have known this. No, because you've got to remember, we carry this whole map of our lives inside of us. And that map isn't always good. It's like, I think every one of us, our, our compasses are a little bit off, right? Because of the things, the bad things have happened to us, the hurts we've incurred. So we don't, we don't always get to make the, we don't, we don't always make the best choices for ourselves. And people feel foolish, especially if it happens to them more than once, right. right? Like, how do I keep doing this? And it really is that your willingness to do that deep dive, like what are the illusions and the delusions we fall into? Take responsibility for those. Try to find out where they come from. But somebody abusing you is never your fault. Just kind of projecting myself. I was in a um, bad relationship before I met my husband. I was young. I had never really had a boyfriend before. I was teased for my look. So finding a guy that liked me was so important mm -hmm, and like mm -hmm. literally gave me validation, gave me yep. the confidence. And so it was a very unhealthy relationship. So a lot of what you're saying is like, oh yeah, he did that. Oh yeah, he did mm -hmm. that. You know, you're never going to find anyone that loves you as much as I, that, as right. I love you and all of those sorts of things. And then starting to think about, um, I absolutely was like, oh my God, but he's paid for dinner that one time and he bought me the teddy that one time in four years. Mm -hmm. And I, so I totally understand what it feels like to be in that situation. Um, and then just trying to come out of it and break out of what they have taught you. Mm -hmm. I think you call it the infecting, mm -hmm. what they've infected mm -hmm. you with. Mm -hmm what they've infected you with because it becomes a belief system mm -hmm. that you have mm -hmm. within yourself mm -hmm. and so i'd actually love to really talk about that about how like if at least for myself when i'd noticed i was in these um, this relationship afterwards there were triggers that i took with me so how do we start to um tear down that like the triggers that we've built up from this this um unhealthy relationship the defense mechanisms that we've built mm -hmm. up so that when we go into another relationship right. that we don't then bring mm -hmm. those bad habits that we've 
built to, to protect ourselves, mm -hmm. that we actually don't do that in the new relationship right. because it won't serve us. So number one, something I call the 12-month detox. After you leave any form of even approximating a narcissistic relationship, you got to be single for a year. And I mean single. No dating, no sex, no nothing. And people are like, why? I'll say because when you're in a narcissistic relationship, you lose yourself. Mm. People lose track of their own preferences, what they like to watch on TV, what they like to eat. They've learned to censor themselves so much that they don't know how to uncensor themselves. They, they forget who they are. Maybe they never even learned it in the first place. Mm. A lot of people very quickly want to get into another relationship, and the quicker they do that, then they're not going to do that deep dive, figuring out their own inner worlds, and then they're going to literally reproduce that cycle with the next person. Mm -hmm. Unless you get super lucky and the next person you meet is just a superstar, kind, loving person, but I got to tell you, if you haven't worked out all that trauma bonded stuff, you're probably going to look at the super kind person and say, kind of boring, not very interesting, and actually start poking holes in them because they're not evoking that trauma bonded sort of sizzle, if you will. That year alone to me is everything because I want a person to go through a year of holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, the leaves turning color, snow falling, rain falling, and have to experience that on their own. Their own experience of it, not someone telling them about it, not someone making fun of them about it. I want you to go out to dinner alone and order what you want. And, and people are like, oh my gosh, this feels so lonely. And then I tell them, does it? Because I want you to remember when you sat in this restaurant and they were sitting there and humiliating you. Does this dinner feel better? Because I'm guessing it does. But you want to romanticize that night you were there with them. But let's really talk about what that was. God, that, that's so true. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I almost call it a trauma tour. But I do think that it, for me, like sort of like I would love to take some of my clients to the places that have caused them the most harm. I actually remember working with one person who her, um, her, her former partner would make fun of certain dishes she cooked. And she loved making them. He, and, she, and so I said, you're going to make a meal of all the foods he hated and have a bunch of people over to eat it. And she did. One person was telling me he, they were the partner, they had an ex-partner who hated films with subtitles. Like, this is the stupidest thing. And this person happened to love, I know it was French films or something like that. I said, you need to have a French film festival. And like every night you're going to watch French films. But it's even little things like mm -hmm. asking people to pay attention. They'll say, oh, I feel so lonely in the airport or I so feel so lonely in the hotel room. I'm like, okay. So because I, I, as a therapist, you kind of have to have a really steel trappy kind of mind and say, I do remember two years ago you telling me how he mm -hmm. screamed and humiliated you all the way down the concourse as you walked to your gate and then yelled at the gate agent, which completely embarrassed you. Do you remember that? Now tell me how this airport experience feels so like, I'm actually having a really good airport experience. Yes, you are. That's the breaking the trauma bond. I love it. The trauma tour, you said? Yeah, the trauma tour. Like I, I, for people who can do so safely, and I mean this, and I almost shouldn't use the word trauma. I think almost like the discomfort tour because I never want because I know for some people trauma might be physical assault and things like that. Mm. might require more help to go to those places. Mm. But if it was something more like psychological abuse, like you were being humiliated, yelled at, um, I remember once, you know, I had been in, in a narcissistic kind of a situation and the person really, really, really um, 
just upbraided me and, and humiliated me in this bar. I've never gone back, and I've driven by it, and I actually felt sick. And I thought to go into that bar maybe with a bunch of friends. And I would say to someone, like, let's say it was a restaurant you went to, and the, that's the place you learned that your husband was cheating on you, your wife was cheating on you, that it was there that you had the conversation about um, how they lied to you about this, or they screamed at you. I'd like to see you go back to that restaurant mm. with your best buddies. Or go alone if you feel up to it. But go with someone you feel safe with and have the best time. It's a way to sort of feel like I'm taking my life back. But all of that has to be done not in a relationship. There's something very unique about the intimate mm -hmm. relationship that pulls for all that trauma-bonded stuff. A lot of people don't like this guidance. In fact, some people have said uh, to my own clients, they're like, your therapist is a hack. Like, you need to go out there and fall in love. You need a rebound person. <laughs> I, don't, I really don't believe it. I think people have been through narcissistic relationships. They, that solitude is so healing. This isn't about loneliness. This is about you recognizing you're such a great person to spend time with, mm -hmm. and you were told for years that you're not. And, I, and, and it takes people a minute. And that doesn't mean not friends. I mean, you want to do things with friends. In fact, a lot of people, when they're in narcissistic relationships, get isolated from friendships. Mm -hmm. They get isolated from beloved family members. Reconnect with them. It's almost like some of the processes you see even in 12-step programs, like if to make amends. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not about necessarily making amends, but saying, I've been terrible about being in touch. I was in this abusive relationship, whatever. Can I'd love to... Can we start again? Some people might say no. They're like, you disappeared years ago. And that's part of the wound of the, mm. of the people you lose. But many people say, of course. And you start recognizing like, wow, I can laugh out loud with this friend. My ex-person used to criticize me or tell me this friend was no good. And you realize this friend always did have your back. They were just trying to isolate you so they'd have more power over you. So it's about taking your life back. To me, that time of becoming reacquainted while you're not in a relationship is where you find out that your legs can stand on their own. Mm -hmm. And then when that <clears throat> next person comes around and says, I don't like subtitles, and you say, well, then this isn't going to work for me. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Um, so it actually, as you was talking, I was wondering, so that restaurant thing, I actually totally understand. You get like the anxieties. You're mm -hmm. like driving past mm -hmm. because it just brings mm -hmm. up the memories. Mm -hmm. And so I love to like go with your friend, mm -hmm. have a great mm -hmm. time. Do you actually advise, though, when you're there, to talk about what happened there? Or is it like you, I want you actually to, shouldn't talk about it? I want about? you to have fun. I, I mean, I think that you'll have an internal process of looking around and you might even wow. think like, think about it. Like, let's say, let's say this is a restaurant, yeah. okay? And you and I are like, and we're having an abusive relationship. Maybe during that abusive, like you screaming at me and gaslighting me and yelling at me and whatever, I fixated on that tree in the corner. Because yeah, that's what a lot of people do when the narcissist is <clears throat> like just psychologically banging them up. They'll often, they, I've, I've seen this happen a lot. The person just sort of focuses on something else and they're just sort of staring at the tree or the wall. Now, unless you go back to that restaurant, you see that tree, it may really bring up some strong feelings for you because that's the tree you were staring at or the wall or the decoration or whatever. It's okay. It's okay. If it feels okay to talk about it, talk about it. It is gone. That thing that harmed you, that person's not in the restaurant with you anymore. Mm -hmm. Your feelings will not kill you. They will not break you. Trust them to flow through you. Like your, your memory systems are holding on to something. And you can look at that tree and say, I remember this. And you can self-talk and say, they're not here anymore. They're not saying these things to me anymore. I'm here. I'm safe. You can say those things out loud and have a friend with you there mm. that can, won't say, like, what are you doing? Who are you talking mm. to? And say, like, have that person be there or do it alone. You know, I've done that. I've been in situations like 
no one's yelling at me right now. Wow, this is really, I'll be, I'll be walking through an airport talking to myself. So maybe <laughs> people will be judging me, and I'm sure they are. But I've done that. Mm -hmm. But in that situation, who cares, right? You're working on yourself. Yeah, and, and I'm like, I'm good. Like, thing. I'm safe. No one's yelling at me now. Yeah. And you're like, wow, sometimes I've even cried. Mm. You know? And is that like cathartic? It's, it's cathartic. You? You're letting it go. And, mm. and I've, I've seen people have said, like, whether it's cooking all the dishes they didn't like or w watching the movie they wouldn't want you to watch or just laughing with friends in a silly way or whatever, celebrating on a holiday in a specific way. Um, that, that you, it's important not that you just do it, but you stop and realize, pay attention to how different it feels to be doing this without someone screaming at you, humiliating you, berating you, and devaluing you. Oh my God, yeah, like as you were talking, I remember actually, <clears throat> it really hit me when you were saying it, that there were certain clothes that my ex-boyfriend used to have a heart attack, basically calling me like a slut mm. because I was wearing shorts, you know, and things like that. So of course you then don't wear them Bingo. because you're like, I, mm -hmm. but I love him, I want him to love mm -hmm. me too. And so it's just a pair of shorts, mm -hmm. right? And so that, of course, is never just a pair of shorts. Um, and I actually remember when I finally broken up, bro broke up with him being like, can I wear those? And it was like the hesitation yep. because he had so trained me to think you can't wear them. Correct. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that idea of controlling what someone wears, controlling their makeup and all that, that's actually a really dangerous dynamic. It's a very abusive dynamic, mm -hmm. a very controlling dynamic. And so, A, if that's happening to someone, someone's like, you have to dress this way. That to me is like 50 red flags that you're being abused, number one. But number two, as part of that healing, that 12-month process as I'm talking about, you go and wear what you like. Mm. And, and you, but see, here's the thing, Lisa. It's not as simple as I'm putting on the shorts, I'm putting on the makeup. Mm. It's paying attention to how you feel. Like, I can wear my shorts. Mm. I'm out in my shorts. No one's yelling at me. You've got to mm. go through that sequence. So now you're like, you're creating a new neural pathway. You're creating this like, I'm wearing shorts and it feels so good to not get yelled at because then you're not romanticizing that. I, you know, I'm saying mm. that abuse, like uh, somebody controlling me okayness, you're trying to break all of that way of thinking. Like, I love wearing my shorts or I love wearing my makeup or I love wearing these crazy hangly, hanging dangly earrings, all kinds of things that people are made fun of for wearing that you're out there and you're like, this feels so good to wear these things that I like wearing. Nobody's making fun of me. You have to go through that whole processing sequence. It's not just about wearing the shorts. It's really being mindful and talking and thinking about, even if you're talking to yourself, about what it feels like to do that. Oh my God, that's so powerful. Mm -hmm. And is, like, is that because you're then rewiring the mm -hmm. thoughts that mm -hmm. you're having and yep. then over time, the more yep. you wear the shorts, mm -hmm. you keep telling right. yourself that, you're rewiring the narrative. It feels you good. Have. These things are my shoes, what I want to wear. This is authentically mm -hmm. me. I feel good in these. You know, that this is, that, that no one's telling me what to do or how to do it. It, it feels really, really good. And mm -hmm. you take yourself back. The more you take yourself back, then when you meet people in the future, you might focus on things like respect, kindness, compassion, shared interests, versus falling into that trauma-bonded trap of I have to win them over. Or, you know what I'm saying, all the things that, like, that take you back to childhood of, I'm not enough, so I have to win this person over. And, and there's one video I recently put out on YouTube where I talk about the difference between being desired and cherished. And that is a really important distinction that's worth bringing in here. So to be desired is like, it's love bombing, it's dramatic, it's, it's being chased, right? And that's all the fairy tales people are raised on. To be cherished is to be valued, to be respected, 
to have someone keep you safe, to have someone be kind with you, for somebody to meet you halfway, or that sometimes you meet them more than halfway, but they're aware of that and they meet you more than halfway. It's, it's to be, again, it's safety. It's somebody holding you like this, like, you're so important to me, right? Mm -hmm. That's being cherished. We are not taught to hold out for that. And that's missing from every narcissistic relationship ever. Knowing you should eat healthy is one thing. You know, on a Monday after you've had a weekend of utter food debauchery, but actually doing it day after day after day, in and out every single day, let's be real, is freaking a lot harder. Especially when it's hard to find high quality animal proteins that aren't overprocessed or pumped with hormones and other harmful ingredients that cause freaking chaos to your body, your hormones, and yep, your brain. And that's why I utterly recommend to anyone that will possibly listen that you source your meats and seafood from my favorite brand where unbelievable high quality is guaranteed. And that's my mate, Butcher Box. I literally am obsessed with them, guys, and I eat their food every single day. Hence why I just keep a box in my kitchen. Butcher Box is a premium meat subscription service that delivers the high quality meats and seafood directly to your door. So if you're freaking busy, you don't have to waste time. You can choose from different cuts of 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood with no added hormones or antibiotics ever, ever, ever. Now, ButcherBox makes it so easy to eat better with the best meat and seafood on the planet that you can actually trust, just like I do. So sign up right now at butcherbox.com slash W-O-I and get our special deal right now. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast or steak tips free in every order for an entire year. So sign up today at butcherbox.com slash W-O-I for Women of Impact and use code W-O-I to choose your free for a year offer. Plus you get $20 off your first order right now. Go over, you won't regret it. If you're working damn hard to kick ass and be unfreaking stoppable, there's one thing I know for a fact that you need to actually show up confident and ready for anything. And that's sleep. That's why I want to introduce you to the secret to better sleep, Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth's luxury bedding products are crafted with temperature-regulating technology so you're not waking up covered in sweat and then shivering 10 minutes later. And they use super soft and breathable materials that literally feel like a cloud on your skin. I'm officially obsessed. They are literally the softest sheets I've ever felt and so I definitely would recommend giving Cozy Earth a try. Treat yourself right now to ultimate comfort with Cozy Earth bedding and make your sleep a priority so that you can actually show up every day with confidence and kick ass. Click the link below or head over to CozyEarth.com and use the promo code LISA to save an exclusive 35% off right now. Upgrade your nights, transform your days with Cozy Earth. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, what is the language then? Because you said like, you're so important to me. That's actually beautiful. That makes me feel cherished. Mm. But even with the value, I was like, I don't know if I would know the difference between someone like bringing desire to make me feel, feel valued versus bringing me, making me feel cherished to feel valued. It's things like, it's, it's respect. It's, um, it's valuing your opinion on something. It is valuing the things that you want to do, even if, the, and if they don't agree with you, to disagree with you even respectfully. Mm. So if you say like, hey, I, I wanna go to that 
little Christmas tree display in the town. That's stupid. Like, what are you, four? And you're like, no, like, that would be fun. Like, oh, come on. Like, let's just go to this cool thing. Like, that's not being cherished. Like, mm. it's like, I, you're, you know, you're my princess, but I'm not going to some Christmas tree thing. Like, I'm, I'll take you out to this fabulous restaurant. Desired. Like, that's mm. like, you're my side piece. Oh. Versus, if that Christmas tree thing's important to you, inside that person might be thinking, Christmas tree thing, but like, they want to do that. That's cherishing someone. Interesting. So is desire more physical, like out, desire, outwards? It's superficial. It's it, it's still on the agenda of the desirer. Does that make sense? Desire mm. is driven by the person doing the desiring. I want you. I need you. Oh. I love you. I, I, I. Instead of, you really want to go see those Christmas trees? Let's bundle up and go see those Christmas trees. You. Wow, I never realized the difference. And it's interesting though, because even when you put it like that, totally get it. But before I heard you say that, like I was like, yeah, I really want to be desired. Yeah, I mean, it feels good. It's sexy. It's right. hot. But you, you're, I mean, I know your marriage, so I can say if you don't if you feel comfortable. Yeah, please. Saying no, no, no. I've been open. in the presence of you and Tom. Tom desires you and cherishes you, both. And I've seen more of the cherishing from him than the desiring. There's a tremendous pride he feels in your presence. So when I'm listening to Tom talk with you and we're, three of us are together, I see someone who has respect, who has admiration, who has kindness, who has tremendous boundaries. He cherishes you. If, he desire, if you can have both, well, then you hit the wall. You okay. won the lottery. I wasn't sure yeah, if the desire should bad. be bad. Okay. You have to have the cherishing. Got the desire is great. I mean, it's fun, but mm -hmm. as the only game in town, it's not going to work. Mm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Okay, I'd love to start. You touched on it earlier and you said trust. Mm -hmm. I actually want to talk about trust because I think that, again, going back to if someone is got the, you know, the, they've listened to you, they've really worked on themselves, they've got out of this relationship, they're looking for someone new, they're, they're spending the 12 months by themselves. I think the trust thing is actually very important because I think so many people say, like, I'm so scared to get into mm -hmm. another relationship mm -hmm. because I'm so scared I'm going to fall back into um, another relationship mm -hmm. with another narcissist. Right. And you hit me with like a side punch one, uh, in one of your videos where you said it's not just about trusting someone else, but people have lack of trust within themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because what happens is, A, you don't feel like you could trust anyone, but you trust your own, you, you mistrust your own judgment. You're like, mm -hmm. I'm the idiot who let this person into my life. I feel ashamed I let this person in my life. So now you view yourself as the problem, right? You're like, damn, like I have no judgment. Mm. And so the the fear is I'm going to make this mistake again, right? So I, I want you, the best example I can give is if your house was burglarized, okay? And you locked the doors and this and that, but there was this one little breach. So then you get out, go out, and you spend thousands of dollars on a state-of-the-art alarm system. You got 20 cameras and motion sensors and glass breaking this and alarms that can be operated from space and all of that stuff, right? It's probably more than, especially if you live in sort of a really kind, nice suburban thing, it was just a bad luck of that one window being cracked, right? We tend to overcorrect. And people in narcissistic, from coming from narcissistic relationships, mm -hmm. they tend to overcorrect. They tend to put up the barbed wire fence and the walls and the fortifications. And you know what I tell the people who do that initially? That's fine. Mm. I need you to feel mm. that you have, because I think when we say, oh, you're putting up too many walls. I actually had that conversation with someone recently when I was sharing an experience I had. They're like, well, you can't put up so many walls. I was like, the hell I can't. Oh. I put up all the damn walls I want. 
And that's what I tell my clients. You put up all the walls you want. You can put up walls. You can put up fences. You can put up barbed wire. And what we're going to do over time is we're going to help you have trusting experiences. And little coil by little coil, we'll take some of that barbed wire down. But we'll do it on your time. I think that when people need to feel safe, we need to help them feel safe instead of judging them as like, well, you're so cynical and not trusting. Why? They just had, they just had their house burglarized and everything was taken. If they want 27 alarms on their house, then that's on them. We don't get to judge that. And so people need to do initially what they need to feel safe. But I have to say that when a person, even a year out of a narcissistic relationship, if they're putting themselves out, even if it's not even just a, a, a romantic partnership, it could be a friendship even, or a workplace thing, that they may throw back fish that are big enough to keep. Like they may overcorrect. They may actually distance themselves from relationships that actually could have been keepers. Mm -hmm. It's okay. It's mm -hmm. okay. I think it's about giving yourself permission to say, okay, maybe I, I hoisted that red flag. Maybe it was just a little bit light pink and I called it red. <laughs> it's okay. When people are saying they see <clears throat> red flags, I want to validate that experience. Mm -hmm. But I've worked with clients who have come off of long-term narcissistic relationships and they're very tentative, like they're walking on ice and they're not sure if it's thick enough. I'll say, listen, if you fall into icy water, you're going to die. And maybe it is thick enough, but I'd rather you didn't take that risk. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a process. And so I think people do learn to trust Lisa. They do. Um, I've seen it happen. So I've seen so many people move into healthy romantic relationships, marriages, amazing workplace situations, amazing friendships after coming out of narcissistic relationships. There's definitely a world where you do learn to trust again. But there's also a learn where, world where you learn to set boundaries and you give yourself permission to say, not okay, or I'm not okay with this. Something that that person could never have done before the narcissistic relationship, the getting lost part again, mm. that sometimes the getting lost is the only way to learn to say, no, I'm not doing this. Like, this isn't okay. You know, or someone will be in a new relationship with someone, they keep talking about an ex-partner their form and but yet otherwise they're good they're cool right they're really mm -hmm. nice respectful they keep making this mistake and you might say I'm not okay with this so you go work on you but you bringing your ex-partner into these conversations all the time something's not resolved for you I like a lot about you but this isn't working for me that for a person who's just coming out of narcissistic abuse feels foreign it's not just about the trust of the other it's about that you have the right to set a boundary and that's about trusting yourself and so does that come first you have to trust yourself before you go out and trust I do others I again? think you do have to trust yeah. yourself you have, and and I think what happens is after a person's been through a narcissistic relationship they doubt their judgment right you see and I'm saying mm -hmm. so then you don't trust yourself mm -hmm. which is why you have to start accumulating experiences where you're like well that went well and that went well because it's very easy again that idea I was saying we tend to focus on the bad things you may have one messed up narcissistic relationship but 20 that are really working of wonderful respectful kind of like you got most of the relationships in your work life are working well this was one mm -hmm. bad thing let's try to break down what happened here but clearly your judgments great because you have all these other wonderful relationships in your life so we also don't want people to overgeneralize from the one toxic relationship when they are managing to have good judgment in all their others. Like I said, we tend to internalize the blame on ourselves for the bad behavior of the narcissist. As humans, we mm -hmm. move towards pleasure and away from pain. Mm -hmm. How do you, and I, I, encourage may not be the right word, but how do you, I've got no other word, encourage those people 
where you're like, hey, look, this is about to get really bad, mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. bad, but it's going to be worth it in the end. Yeah, I would say with the word I would use is support. Like you're really supporting a person who goes through this is, I and mean, I don't even, listen, I'm going to be almost cynical. I don't know that I can guarantee them it's all going to be okay in the end. Mm -hmm. I do believe they're going to be better off without this toxic energy in their life. There was actually some interesting data that was collected by uh, a, a team I work with that's based in Israel as a, a, a site that calls um, Stuff That Works. And they actually collected some data on narcissistic abuse. And one of the things that they found in, the, in, in, their, in their data was that no contact, like cutting the narcissist off completely, is the technique that worked the best for mm. people to heal. Like no contact in like that. Done. We're done. Like you, I, you are not Rip to contact me. Done. All right. That finding made me both really happy and really sad. Mm. Made me happy because I'm like, okay, this works. It made me sad because it's a technique not accessible to many people. Does that make sense? Not everyone can go no contact for a whole range of reasons. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you really, really step back and think about if you've ever known someone who's difficult or toxic, when they were out of your life, everything got a lot easier. There's no way to soft pedal that, mm -hmm. right? And so not getting yelled at, not getting screamed at, not getting angry emails, not getting angry texts, not getting angry, 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 and all the other abuse and victimhood and all the other stuff they're piling on, right? To be away from that, anyone is going to be relieved. So I'll tell folks, I want you to close your eyes and imagine what it would be like to not get messages from them for a week. And people almost look like, you think you put them on the beach in Hawaii, they're like... <laughs> Oh my gosh. I said, okay, hold that, hold that feeling. And then, um, and I'll say, but this is the pathway to get, get to this. Okay. It's terrifying. In some of the, in many cases, not some, many cases, people who are leaving narcissistic relationships are terrified. There's a whole range of responses to downright stalking and dangerous sort of harassment and stalking all the way down to more of the like petty comments on social media, mm narcissist the narcissistic person calling their friends and family members and kind of almost creating alliances against you it's really it can be really destabilizing for a person who goes through this and will find themselves they're afraid to look at their inbox they're afraid to even they're afraid when their phone rings because they're thinking or, or pings when there's a text mm -hmm. because they're they're anxious about their social media some people go off completely because they're so scared of it. It is just, it's the relentlessness. And it, someone I know once said it really astutely. They said, when you're having an argument with a narcissistic person or whatever it is, email battle or text battle, whatever, they don't pause, they reload. It's like they just, oh. they come in and it just even more vitriol coming your way. And it never ends. Like it's middle of the night they're doing it. First thing in the morning, you're just, it doesn't end for folks. Whereas for most people, we're like, okay, can we just let this go? Mm -mm. Because that abandonment issue, as, as well as they lost control. For narcissistic people, it's really important for their ego to always be in control. And the idea that someone else is calling the shots does not work for them. Mm. So are there a few, um, I assume nothing is universal, but are there a few things that someone can do in those moments? Because going through that journey of leaving someone that's a narcissist, like you said, can be, you know, absolutely painstaking is there certain advice that is somewhat universal that, that certain people can do in those situations so is it like mm -hmm. um so i've heard you say don't tell a narcissist they're a narcissist never <laughs> never that's a big mistake people will watch my content and say ha 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 
I've got the answer. And I'm like, no, 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 never. Because by the time it's done, they would have said, they would have convinced you that you're the narcissistic person because <laughs> oh, really? they're much better at arguing. And how dare you? And how dare you use a clinical term? And, and, and people will, mm. they will either take such a relentless attack or they will doubt themselves. And I'll say, what's the win on this? Where is the point? Because if you're doing it to intentionally hurt them, that's not good for your soul to intentionally hurt anyone. Mm. So don't do that. If it's to say, I figured you out, why do they need to get the memo? You figured them out. Make your decisions accordingly. Because it. I've always found that when people have that call them out conversation, it always makes a destabilized situation even far, far worse. I say, listen, hold on to it as your secret. It's like, now I have the roadmap. Now I can see this clearly. I say, absolutely not. The other piece I tell people is that this is once you come into the revelation that these patterns are really again we talked about it in the previous time mm -hmm. i was on the show the lack of empathy the entitlement the grandiosity the arrogance the sensitivity to criticism the constant need for admiration and validation the sense of always being a victim the sense that everyone's out to get them all of those are very classically narcissistic things and patterns once you're pretty clear that this is what you're do dealing with no matter what you do it never changes it's always the same, however you say it, on and on and on. You're being manipulated, you're being gaslighted and everything. You don't need to make a decision immediately. A lot of people say, well, now that I know this, I gotta go away. Mm. No, get your ducks in line. If it's a, if it's a workplace situation, if it's a um, divorce, you're gonna need documentation. You need to make sure you have good financial records that in many cases money is hidden. In fact, I'd say in a majority of cases, people hide money in these kinds of situations. So you need a good attorney. It often doesn't always work to do this in a mediation, that you actually need an attorney to do the good fight because a narcissistic person will usually try to hijack the mediation. And people are so traumatized and so confused by these relationships, they're really not in a good position to be their own advocate. Mm -hmm. And so it's if it's a workplace situation, you're gonna need tons of documentation if you need to file a claim or a grievance or even get out of there and not have it hurt your career in the future. So I say, make sure you're getting things documented. Absolutely make sure you're in therapy. Being supported, having a sounding board. Many people going through this have other mental health issues they're managing, depressive symptoms, anxiety. Some may turn to substances to, to manage their feelings. Some may start developing issues around food and eating. Like there's a whole host of issues we may see. People with existing mental health problems may have now an intensification. Mm -hmm. You need to be in good therapy to really walk through this, to have, again, to get as much information as you can possibly get and then recognize it's going to be a battle. I always tell people, you need to write down everything. There's actually a technique I give people, it's called the ick list, and ick as an ick. <laughs> but the ick list is this, where you write down every bad thing that's happened in the relationship. And the reason I tell people to do this is as they're getting ready to leave or the narcissistic person confuses them so much, just having that list and saying, when they're having a doubt, like, well, maybe it wasn't that bad, or. Oh, maybe I am going to stay in it. They'll read the list and say, I can't. I forgot this and I forgot that. And I sometimes say, you might even want to make that ick list with some of your closest people, the ones you can trust, who say, oh, do you not remember when he got drunk at your birthday party? Do you not remember that time he cheated on you when he went to Vegas? Like, did you forget these things? People don't forget them. But denial and the way our brain tries to almost cordon off traumatic memories often leads us to kind of conveniently push them to the side, like it's a storage unit where we've forgotten what we've put there. And then we're hurtling through 
on an incorrect set of assumptions. Oh, so you said something. I didn't want to interrupt you, but how do you get your friend、mm-hmm. to say that when a lot of people, if they go through a breakup, they turn to their friends. The friends like, yeah, he's he's terrible.、Mm-hmm. You need to leave him. Oh my god, I'm so glad. And then they end up not leaving them. And now they almost don't talk to the friend because the friend doesn't like the partner. And so, how do you encourage、yeah. friends to speak up in those moments, remind、yeah. you of those things? Because the fear is they're going to come back to you after and be like,、right. "Oh, I'm staying with them, and now I'm not talking to you." I'd have a very different kind of a conversation about it. And I've actually known a few people who will say, as the friend of the person in the narcissistic、mm-hmm. relationship, if they go back, I have to cut out of this friendship because I can't watch this anymore.、Mm-hmm. It's like watching a horror film. They're like,、mm-hmm. I can't watch this anymore.、Um, And you know what? That friendship will come back together if and when the day comes they ever leave this person. But I wouldn't make it about this is such a this is such a bad guy, this is such a bad person. Make it more about the events,、oh. the, the at literal episodes. And even in that ick list, I tell people these are about the episodes that happened in this、mm. relationship, the things, the behaviors, not the what a bad person, but the you know the、um, inappropriate text with somebody at work, the.、Um, mm. You know the constant criticism of your family, the making, you know, the leaving a really important work event where you were going to get an, an award early. People get this stuff.、Mm-hmm. Most people don't keep those kinds of journals. And by generating that ick list, and I, I don't disagree with you that if you bring in your friends, then you may get mad at your friends. Well, that's something you need to work on. Your your friends try to do you a proper、mm-hmm. by saying, "I don't feel like this is healthy. I don't feel like this is good." Healthy friendships are going to be able to withstand this. They really, really are.、Mm. They'll say, "Okay, I know that you told me this. I get why you're staying. I love you. I'm here, and we. I can talk about it." Like good people can actually kind of be able to go shape shift and say, "If this is what makes you happy, I can be here for you." And I shared those things with you because I I observed them. Right? I could say that I saw this happen. That was not an okay thing. That is mu- very different than he's a bad guy.、Mm, yeah, it makes such a difference. You're right, hundred percent. In everything we're saying, there's a lot of the language the、um, the narcissist uses, and a lot of it is manipulative, demeaning.、Mm-hmm. Um, how do you advise people to respond in those moments? It's a great question because it's not as simple as somebody says that to you and you get up and walk out of、right. a room, right? You almost need a transitional phrase. The ones I offer are kind of inane. They're things like, "I see, got it, okay, all right."、Um, that's hard to hear, but okay. And just you give a transition and say, "I got to step out for a little bit, or I'm gonna just gonna I'm gonna run to the bathroom, or I'm、um, you know I think I think we're good here for、mm-hmm. now." Like I'm, I'm, it's just you're giving a sort of a transitional sign off and get yourself out of that situation. Imagine you were in a room. And somebody was singing, swinging a sword around and slashing you up a bit and getting close to you. Would you stay in that room? No. Hell no. You'd leave. Why would it be any different if somebody sang? Think of it as someone's just swinging this machete or sword、mm. at you. You would say, "I got this. Is not safe for me." Now, you wouldn't may not say to someone, "This is not safe for me." I always really encourage people watch things like your tone. Watch your volume. Don't escalate with them. Don't say, "How dare you?"、Mm. Not none of that. Okay, so you almost want to think like a hostage negotiator. They don't start screaming at people. They actually break. They keep their volume really, really steady. 
They like to trying to talk someone down, trying to talk someone out of a crisis. Mm -hmm. And so you keep it steady and you say things like, okay. I see. What if they really upset you? Still just like take Try a deep to get breath. out as soon as possible. Like take a deep breath because what you don't want them to see is you cry. Oh. Save those tears for the bathroom. Save those tears for the drive you're about to take. Save those tears for a walk. Not in front of them. Why is that? They'll weaponize them. Oh, baby, baby, really? You can't take a little thing? I am so tired of your disgusting weakness. Mm. Is that what you want to hear when you're crying? No. No, I take get out. Take your weakness and get out. And when I say weakness, I don't mean that in a bad right. way. I mean your vulnerability. Yeah. Get out of that situation. Because I think that's the issue. You don't want to serve up your pain to somebody who's going to melt it into bullets. You don't want to serve up the pain to someone that's going to melt it into bullets. How often do we do that and not realize it? All the time. All the time. I think that, and this is where we talk about that hope of the narcissistic relationship, right? right? I am going to show my pain. I am going to sob. I'm going to anguish. And here's where it gets really confusing. In some cases, when people fall to their knees and they wail and they sob, it's as though that level of, if you will, degradation is what the narcissistic person wants. They do want they it. They want it. It's because now it's like to them, they're like, you're, they have contempt for your emotion. They're disgusted by you, but they're like, Ugh, get up off the floor. It's very contemptuous. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind, that for some people who are really stuck in these trauma-bonded cycles with narcissistic people, they may not want out. So they're sobbing and wailing on the floor, and they're like, oh, they didn't kick me out. And you can see how this cycle of like almost like showing this almost degraded emotion, this humiliating emotion in front of the narcissistic person is like their prize mm -hmm. because it keeps you here and them here. Mm -hmm. All you know, the, the, the primary motivations of these difficult relationships are the narcissistic or difficult person wants power, they want control, um, they want everything for their own pleasure, their own needs, and they're almost getting a little bit of enjoyment like, ha, 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 so mm -hmm. weak. Because for them, it keeps their, because we talked about in that previous episode with you, what the core of the narcissistic personality is inadequacy, these big feelings of inadequacy and insecurity. So anything that brings those inadequacies to the surface brings up a lot of shame for them when they feel shame, they rage. Mm -hmm. So if you're wailing on the ground and crying or moaning or sobbing in front of them, their inadequacy stuff gets totally pushed into the background because now they feel strong and powerful on your back, on your pain is actually being used for them as fuel for their ego. Mm. That's not healthy. How to then act once you realize that mm. the person is a narcissist and you've communicated and now you want to leave. Yeah, okay. And so I'd love to actually read a proverb that you yeah. said, um, to get lost is to learn the way. Yeah. So yeah. I really want to start there yeah. because I feel like when people are feeling lost, yeah. they almost don't know where to go. Yeah. Listen, think about school. If the teacher just said, here's two plus two, here's four times eight, and never made the child work the problems, they'd never learn math. Or they, if they didn't make them fill out a map, this is United States, this is Africa, whatever, they'd never learn geography. Mm. At some point, we have to do it. Now, when we elevate that to adult relationships, we think 
why did I have to? I, I just went through this. I literally got lost. I got harmed. I, I lost people in my life. I lost myself. I lost my identity. What was that all for? And I do think in that way, these terrible experiences do become a teacher. I always tell people it's a balancing act, right? Nobody should ever go out and seek out suffering. Like, I'm going to go get into a narcissistic <laughs> relationship so I can get lost and learn something. Uh -uh. No, 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 no. We don't want you to do that. And also, I think some people feel like a hurry up and heal mentality. Like, okay, I'm out of it, so now I got to heal. Mm -mm -mm. I'm also not behind that. Grief and giving yourself time to sort of go through the steps, regret and rumination and the things that happen after a narcissistic relationship are part of that cycle and I'm never a fan of hurry up and heal because I think some people then having been so bashed by a narcissistic relationship will say great now I'm even failing at healing there's no such thing as failing at healing okay each if you're getting up out of bed in the morning even if you're slow and even if it's later than you want you're healing because you have the courage to face down another day mm -hmm. okay but that idea of getting lost, because we all, when we are in these narcissistic relationships, we get lost, that we've learned something. The key, though, Lisa, the key above everything else is to hold on to that lesson and not naively say, well, that was just an exception and next time's going to be different. No, no, no. Two plus two is always four. <laughs> you know, next time it's not going to be five. It's always going to be four. You've got to learn from this. And it's hard. Because the lessons of narcissistic relationships can feel cynical, they can feel painful, it can feel like, how can I trust anyone? And it's not as black and white as how can I trust anyone, but you're definitely not going to trust people the same way. Ooh, okay, I really want to go deep on everything you just said because it's so powerful. So thinking about the person right now that is feeling lost, yeah. giving them the, the hope that, look, you can get out of it. And that's why yeah. I really like that quote in the sense of, look, you may feel lost right now, but don't worry. It can be a good thing because you can learn from it. You will learn from it. You will get lost. You will learn from it. You will learn that you're a better navigator than you thought. You may have had to go around that landmark mm. six times. You're like, I've seen that tree before. I'm going to get out of this because... To get lost and then find, you, you will find that idea of finding the way is that you're, you're learning something from this, mm -hmm. right? That, and that learning makes you more wise. And you are able to see that, no, there's not something wrong with you. It's not you. It's really that this happens to all of us. It happens to me. It happens to you. It happens to everybody. Mm -hmm. And that if you can heed those lessons, you will then come out of it saying, wow, now I know how to use this compass. Now I know how to read this map. And that's actually a really, there's a certain confidence that comes from that. And you could not have learned that lesson unless you'd gone through it. So the, the sort of the hope message there is, it's not the hope that the narcissist will get better. Mm -hmm. It's not the hope that next time, you know, the next narcissist I'll figure it out. No, it's the hope is around, you are a better navigator of your own life and you had the wisdom to extract the lessons from this really difficult experience. Okay, I absolutely love that. So I'm thinking about now this person that's listening that is stuck in this relationship that mm -hmm. feels lost and is now, now you've just eloquently put of how they can use mm -hmm. that to actually mm -hmm. better their life and mm -hmm. move forward. So now I start to think about, okay, in communicating with somebody, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, a partner mm -hmm. that's a narcissist and saying, okay, I finally want to leave, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got the courage mm -hmm. and now mm -hmm. you've listened to Dr. Ramani who has said, you know, okay, this is going to be a lesson. Mm -hmm. You build up the confidence. Mm -hmm. You maybe have some words that you're preparing to say to them. 
I actually want to talk about the traps that people may find yeah. themselves in because I'm the type of person, that if I know the traps are coming, at least I'm aware yeah. of them so that when I'm in there, I don't actually get trapped and revert back to the norm yeah. of I'm lost, I'm yeah. a loser, I'm in this relationship mm -hmm. and there's no way out. Okay, so let's start with talking about the five ways people get stuck in narcissistic relationships. Even when they're like, I know this isn't healthy for me, I know this isn't good for me. Let's talk about the five traps. Yeah. Hope, fear, guilt, pity, and believe it or not, comfort. <laughs> start with hope. The hope is this is going to get better. Maybe if I wait another year. Maybe if we wait for them to get a promotion. Maybe if we make a little bit more money. Hope, hope, always almost future faking yourself, right? You keep moving your own goalposts. And it doesn't help that they're doing it too. They're like, give me another year, give me another six months, I'm going to go to therapy, I'm going to... No, they're not. I just want to highlight that frame you said, it's so good, future faking yeah. yourself. Woo! So, and that's worse than someone future faking you, because now you're, you're almost like falling into the same vat with them of saying, I'm going to give it this much time, or maybe after the... No, mm -hmm. today, you're going to judge today, okay, so that's the hope, the fear people have is the fear of being alone, the fear of having to start again, the fear of um, doing things on their own, the fear of what if I'm wrong? You know, what if they actually do change? What if I, maybe it was going to happen in six months, so there's a lot of fear, okay? The guilt. One thing we talked about in that first episode we did together is not all narcissism is the, the big peacock strutting around so grandiose. Mm. In some cases, the narcissistic presentation is really vulnerable. It's, they're very socially anxious. They're always a victim. You always need to rescue them. So people sort of feel a sense of guilt of like, I'm not a mean person. I'm a compassionate person. I don't want to leave someone when they're down. Well, they're always down. Mm. So it's never going to be the right time. But that last piece, that piece, that comfort piece is challenging too because we really do gravitate to that which is familiar even when it's traumatic. Mm. And so that idea of trauma bonding, you keep having the same arguments but they're familiar arguments, that's very much the trauma bond. The justifying all the time, the thing, using sort of magical terms like, I don't know, it's just something, I can't describe why I like them. I'm like, if you can't describe <laughs> why you like them and you're using all this magical talk, then there's something wrong here. Tell me why you like spending time with this person. I know it's a narcissistic relationship, but people are like, I don't know how to describe it. It's just like this magic, and I don't know how to describe it. I said, you don't know how to describe it because it's not healthy. Interesting. Why is that? Can you go deeper and explain so this, that? So it's a big part of the trauma bonding experience because it's so primal, right? Mm -hmm. Is really someone going to say, you know why I like being in this relationship? Because they remind me of my invalidating mother. And they, the, the, the reminder of my invalidating mother is really just such an interesting place for me to work things through. They ain't going to say that, <laughs> right? So they're going to say, I don't know how to describe it. It feels sort of magical. And I'm like, oh, God, no, no, no magic. I want to hear respect, kindness, compassion, similar values, similar Ooh. interests. I feel safe. I want to hear that stuff, yeah. okay? So all of that stuff, though, in a trauma-bonded relationship, sadly can feel like comfort because familiarity is one of the greatest comforts of all. Think about it. You go back to a hometown, even if you never want to live there again, there's a comfort in knowing almost intuitively the turns and the road and all of that stuff, right? We are soothed by comfort. It's the phrase, the better the devil you know. Yep. And then and the biggest trouble you have, basically. <laughs> so the, all of that stuff keeps people stuck, okay? But even once people recognize that and they're like, no, oh, despite all of that, I'm going to do the courageous thing. I'm going to step out of this. Then they step out. Okay. 
couple of things happen. Most classically is the phenomenon of hoovering. Now, hoovering, and you know this as a Brit, is a vacuum, yeah, right? Yeah, so you yeah. know it better it than Americans. Like, Americans are like, hoovering. It's, it's, it's a vacuum. Yeah. So it's sucking someone back in. Mm. And hoovering is a common narcissist tactic. Now, not every narcissist hoovers. Sometimes they move on into their own future thing without you. But many times they do. It's a power play. It's a dominance play. Mm -hmm. It's a way for them to feel in control. It's game playing. It messes with your mind. It's manipulation. But hoovering is when the person's left. They're already struggling with the hope, the fear, the guilt, the pity, the trauma bondedness, all of that. And then the narcissist, I don't know, two months out, three months out, even three days out, texts like, hey, babe, I miss you, or like, been thinking about you. And this, this sort of the fantasy version, that love bombing version of the narcissist mm -hmm. sort of starts to emerge again. And you think, Oh, yeah I, was, yeah, I was right. See, hope. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some people, when they step out, enjoy that sense of power of like, oh, if I step away from them, then they become nice again. And that's a trauma-bonded dance. In the relationship, out of the relationship, mm -hmm. in the relationship, out of the relationship. Recognizing that the narcissistic person loves games in relationships. They love the chase. They love the hoovering cycle. So some people really can get very vulnerable to getting sucked back in and almost enjoying the having the narcissist trying to win them over. Well, as soon as they get them back in, they discard them. It's like a child with a toy they don't really want. They just wanted to get it away from their brother or their sister, right? So th that hoovering trap is a big one for someone to be resistant to because every trauma-bonded cell in their body is saying, I want to go back, oh you know? And you have to say, no, 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 no. It it's almost like don't walk towards the light. In this case, like walk the other way, <laughs> whatever the other way is. And so... That's a huge risk, okay? But then we have to add into that, Lisa, things like societal pressures. And this is where we talk about enabling. The enablers, to me, in many ways, are as dangerous as the narcissist. The ones who are like, oh, they're not so bad, or you just mm. got to give them a chance, or come on, the devil you know. And they'll say things that will not only attempt to sort of downgrade the harm the narcissist is doing, but then leave the person who wants to step away from the relationship feel shamed, foolish, like they're making a mistake. Because that person who's leaving the relationship is already struggling with that. Right. So if the enablers mm. are stepping in and they're saying like, oh, you sure you know what you're doing? Then there, there's already so much doubt in the mind of the person leaving. So now this enabler is pouring all this new doubt in there. And again, there's a lot of shame around that. like. Who am I to think I could step away? Because narcissistic abuse really undoes a person, leaves them feeling like they're not enough, leaves them feeling like they're, they're full of self-doubt, they're confused, and they really start believing, like, who else will have me? Who cares who else will have you? We just want to get you away from that person. But the enablers can really do a number on a person, as well as society. You know, like... Um, we're making this episode around the holidays, right? And so you gotta be, you can't be alone during the holidays. I can't tell you how many people got stuck in narcissistic relationships for another six months because it was the holidays and they didn't want to stay leave because of the holidays. And I'm like, oh my gosh, just go get drunk under a tree somewhere. But like, <laughs> please don't let this be why you, you, you end up signing up for more. So you can see that there's, it's society, it's enablers, mm -hmm. it's your own demons. All of that colludes to make not only leaving, but even walking that first block out of the relationship really, really difficult. I love how you frame it. And then also, like, I would love to get some, like, real tactics because mm -hmm. 
I'm always that person where, like, if I'm emotionally not feeling, mm -hmm. like, if I'm feeling vulnerable, mm -hmm. I need tips and tactics to actually either do or say mm -hmm. in those moments to not then just let my heart mm -hmm. follow, mm -hmm. um, get hoovered back in, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. So I actually want to start with hope because what are the language that people say, that narcissists will say to you um, to bring back that hope that you can kind of... Um, be wary of that becomes a flag. So for instance, I know that you've said when someone says to you like, oh, um, don't, it's never gonna happen again. So things like that, mm -hmm. what are the things that they're using to um, trigger your hope? It's never gonna happen again. I'm gonna go get therapy. Give it another, give me another six months. This has just been a rough time. Um, the holidays are tough for me. Valentine's Day is mm -hmm. tough for me. Your birthday is tough for me. My birthday is tough. They'll keep lin linking it to anniversary dates, holiday dates, mm -hmm. and say, let's just get through this holiday. Let's just get through the summer. Let's just get through the fall. Let I'm like, okay, we've got all four seasons, so we just <laughs> go in through. Right. So it's always this idea of let me get through this review at work. Mm -hmm. Let me get through this deadline. Um, so in essence, you're always being put on ice. Yeah. Right? That's that future faking. But that's how the hope gets cultivated. Because they're saying, like, I'm aware there's an issue, right? So when somebody says that to you, mm -hmm. I'm aware there's an issue, that fosters your hope. But basically, mm -hmm. they're saying, and you're not important enough for me to adjust that right now. Oh my God, that's so true. And then thinking about, I know a lot of women that have been hurt and um, are wounded. And mm -hmm. so they look for that in a partner mm -hmm. because they feel needed. Mm -hmm. I can help fix that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. even with, with the guilt part, I think that how, how does someone work through that? That might be one of the hardest things of all to work through, right? Because especially when you're dealing with somebody who's a very manipulative, vulnerable narcissist, they use their victimization as a tool. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, nothing ever goes my way. and Life is so unfair to me. And, you know, I can't, you know, who's ever going to want to be with me? Now, often even a vulnerable narcissist, their tactics are interesting. They'll even put themselves down. Like, oh, if you leave me, who's ever going to want mm -hmm. me? And if, some, if they're with somebody... And usually vulnerable narcissists are with rescuers and fixers, right? They're not the big, flashy, grandiose narcissists. These are the ones who are getting very victim, very sullen, very resentful, very angry and brooding and all of that, that the rescuers will feel like, oh, God, like this is this poor person. And so it really is the work then becomes is to say your empathy and compassion are such beautiful things. Mm -hmm. However, I want us to take a minute and really list all of the unhealthy patterns in this relationship. Because what's happening is you're basically staying in something that's noxious, that's unhealthy. It's almost like being next to like a chemical dump site and smelling in all the chemicals or next to someone who's smoking a cigarette or something and blowing the smoke towards you. That's not good for you. Mm -hmm. And so that idea of helping someone see that you can retain your empathy and compassion and you can also preserve yourself and your job on this earth is not to rescue another capable adult. That responsibility lies on them. Wow, that was so amazing. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Because I really do worry about those situations where people do just take it on themselves as mm -hmm. their responsibility. And you're 100% right that they'll lock it away. Like the phrase that came to mind is you, tr you teach people how to treat you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that phrase really hits me and so when I think about things like that it's like you mean so well and that's the thing right people mean well right and that phrase though Lisa it's tricky you teach people how to treat you because so many people were never taught how to be treated ah. 
my. You see what I'm saying? So I think that there's a real risk with that one because many people came from homes where they were invalidated as children, mm -hmm. where they were not valued, where they had no empathy shown to them. It came from family systems characterized by narcissism and antagonism and high conflict personalities. So nobody taught them. Mm -hmm. So this idea of they don't know how to teach someone else because they themselves uh -huh. don't know. I'm not even going to say they're teaching people. One of the key elements to remember about the narcissistic relationship, it's why currently the world of mental health is not serving this group of people who's going through narcissistic abuse well. Mm. We make it all about responsibility and we put all the responsibility on the person going through narcissistic abuse and they're already blaming themselves. But mm. the person who's behaving badly really is the narcissistic person. Right? right? And since the world is telling this person in the relationship maybe you shouldn't leave or everyone deserves second chances or why don't you forgive, they're getting that message messaging. Mm -hmm. They themselves are confused. They've been gaslighted. They've been manipulated. They think all of this narcissistic person's behavior is their fault. Right. So you feel like that framing actually, they, 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 they will take on the blame which Correct. obviously doesn't serve them. Correct. Yeah, so I think this mm -hmm. idea that they have this person in the narcissistic relationship mm -hmm. thinking that they can take all this responsibility and have all this power, mm -hmm. they actually can't and don't mm -hmm. because this is so manipulative. Right. And even the mental health profession will say, well, like, well, what's your role in this? I said, this is like saying what someone's role is. Somebody gets punched in the face and said, well, does your face really need to be in the way? <laughs> So that's the challenge. That's really, really the challenge. And yeah, I think that ultimately so the survivor and the experiencer of narcissistic abuse will get their power back, but not while they're in the toxic situation. Mm. We gotta get them out a little bit. And, and that's why therapy with somebody who understands trauma, domestic violence, narcissistic abuse, like therapists who understand those things are often the best in the best position to work with these individuals because the focus is to not blame them. But unfortunately, a lot of times the conversation is about like, well, teach them. There's not, you can't teach, they're, they're inaccessible. They cannot be taught, they cannot be anything. They're entirely egocentric. So even if you try to teach them how you want to be treated, they ain't listening because they have no empathy. Right. They don't care. You're merely an object to get them what they need. Wow, okay. so it Actually, correct me if I'm wrong, so you're saying the real healing must happen after you've left the relationship. Or it has to, because again, I always want to frame this as not everyone can leave. Right. And I don't want anybody watching this to feel like, well, if I can't leave, does that mean I'm never going to heal? Absolutely not. Because I completely understand for reasons of money, fear, culture, children. There's reasons people feel like they can't leave. And those reasons are valid. I, get, I am very mindful of never invalidating the survivor's experience. So even if you're still in it, there are things that can be done towards healing. The key, if you leave, obviously the more distance and time, but I'm gonna tell you, girl, there are people who leave these relationships and their head is as much in these relationships as somebody who's physically still in the relationship, mm. right? Whether you're physically in the relationship or physically out, you gotta get your head out of that game too, oh. right? People keep giving away all of their precious mental real estate to the narcissist by ruminating, by having regrets, by looking at social media, what are they up to? Is the next person getting a better version of them? No, there's only one version. It's like narcissist 1.0. It never gets better. For the survivors, there's 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. You're going to keep evolving. They're always going to be the same version. The next person's going to get exactly what you got. 
Wow, so do you handle then the healing and the same, whether you're in or out, or is it actually there's different tactics for both? Slightly different, but again, it, it's, it's really addressing things, like addressing things like rumination, understanding processes like grief, not falling into the, the, the sort of the vortex of what I call euphoric recall. Mm. Euphoric recall is remembering only the good things about the relationship. Oh my God, yes! So mm -hmm. why do we do that? That's a, that, again, it's part of the trauma-bonded experience because it's the, it's the justification and rationalization. It actually kind of flies, in, it goes against what our human brain is designed to do. The human brain, unfortunately, is actually uniquely positioned to remember bad stuff more potently than it remembers good stuff. Mm -hmm. That's a survival mechanism that's in our brain. So, you know, if we remember the bad stuff, then we remember that was a poisonous plant, <laughs> that's a dangerous ravine, there's a tiger over there. Like, we need to remember those bad things mm -hmm. so we don't die, right? So there's an evolutionary piece to that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a lot there's actually a guy named Rick Hansen who wrote an amazing book called Buddha's Brain and does a lot of work in this area, and he often says like one of the, some of his work is on how do we almost retrain the brain to remember the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, in people who've gone through narcissistic relationships, this is where the trauma bond creates this interesting hiccup. They'll remember bad things about other stuff like being alone, but they'll remember the good stuff about this narcissistic relationship. It's often an artifact of childhood. So for people who had narcissistic or invalidating or high conflict environment childhoods, kids really don't have options. So they have to tell themselves stories and give themselves rationalizations that somehow this mess that's floating around them is okay. Well, mommy really loves me. She's just really busy. And daddy really loves me because remember that one day he took me to throw a baseball after 200 days of yelling at you. You know, so they, the child has to mine those, those good experiences out of it to survive. Right? Well, that experience and jumps into adulthood. That's that trauma bond. It's a long-term experience. And so in adulthood, the more toxic the relationship, the more the trauma-bonded person says, like, but we had that great night in Miami, or they did get me that nice present that one Christmas 30 years ago. You know, and then they will forget all the abuse, yelling, invalidation, gaslighting, infidelity, lying, whatever it is. And that's why one of the things I do with people as part of their healing journey is I have them make a list. I, I've colloquially called it the ick list. I don't know, I call it something else, but it's like ick. And I said, I need you to write down every terrible thing they did to you. And if you can't remember it all, I need you to call friends. I need you to go through your calendar. I need you to look up anniversary dates. I need every bad thing written down. And some people are like, I don't want to do this. This makes me sick. And I said, it makes you sick because we're cutting the trauma bonds. Yeah. You have to, this is like putting up an ugly mirror in front yeah. of you and saying, this is what this relationship was. And every time you want to go into that euphoric recall, I need you to look at that list. How would you then start to break it down afterwards? Because the thing that I worry about is that people then stay there because they're like, okay, now I've protected myself. Right. I actually don't get dinged anymore. Right. So I'm going to keep these walls up for the rest of my life because they've worked for me. No, because they aren't, because now you're not in the world anymore, mm. right? One day you're like, it's almost like you're looking out of your barbed wire castle and saying, well, they seem to be having fun out mm. there and I'm not in the fun, right? So it's, it's the doing. It's go, so it's starting with small experiences. Maybe you go to a friend's birthday party and you and your friend has some friends there that you don't know. And you have a conversation, it's a safe place. It's your friend's mm -hmm. birthday party, right? It has a finite beginning and a finite end. And you have a conversation with somebody new. And they tell you, and it's not maybe just a friendship, right? They tell you about, I don't know, their job or their car or this new appliance they bought that you're thinking of getting. And you have that conversation. 
this is why journaling becomes important because then you might even write down like met this new person today had a really cool conversation about i don't know an air fryer i really enjoyed it i turns out they're from the same town as my grandmother like and i didn't feel scared a little bit of the barbed wire comes down that day mm. right it's a slow process and it does mean that you're right you can't sit forever behind the barbed wire but i don't know that most people want that i think what they want though initially is permission to erect it mm. so that they can slowly take it down over time mm. do you think they need permission to break it down as well yeah i think so too like to say it's okay like some people say i don't know i don't want to meet new people i'm i'm like i'm going through my own difficult time in my life right now so if somebody right now said to me come to come to a party meet a bunch of people in fact a dear friend of me asked me to come to a christmas party the middle of the month and it's an act of will for me to go to this mm -hmm. i know there'll be many people there i don't know mm -hmm. and i'm so i'm really wrecked right now i'm just going through a tough time and um but I said, come hell or high water, Romani, you've got to go to that Christmas party. I don't care if this person happens to live in an absolutely beautiful place, too. Like, there's a beautiful view. So if I'm feeling overwhelmed, I know I can look out to the view mm -hmm. and all of that. And there's one very, very important friend of mine there who I know she, I feel very safe with her. Sometimes all it takes is one person. As long as I know she's in that room somewhere and I can get her eye contact, I'll feel okay. Mm -hmm. But And I know if after an hour I'm overwhelmed, I'll leave. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's the doing. So that, to me, it's an act of will. I'm like... Uh, and there's one thing that might throw it off that night, but I say, even if you show up at 9 or 10 o'clock at night for 20 minutes, you are showing up. So you do have to say, and it doesn't mean I'm going to walk out of there with a new friend, but it's that idea of trusting myself enough that I can go. So these are baby steps. They're baby steps. And so how do you know then in those moments where you're like, actually, I'm put, putting myself in a situation that makes me feel uncomfortable. Right. So I actually shouldn't be putting myself in this situation. You know what, I'm not gonna go to the party because right. I know it's gonna hurt. Right, so the thing is here, like I said, one safe person. So if this was somebody said, come to this event where you don't know anybody, oh, hell no. There's no way, like some, for a lot of people, oh, yeah. I know I can say for myself, you know, a lot of people say no. If I can, can I bring someone? Can, so figure out a way to mm. make it seem safer. And then also give yourself that escape clause, like, it's okay if I leave after 20 minutes. Like, mm. there's no problem. Because you probably won't. Having all that safety, having the friend saying 20 minutes is fine, you might just find yourself by the time you have your beverage, by the time you have your snack, by the time you talk to a few people, now it's an hour, maybe it's two hours. You're like, oh, that was fine. And so I think that it becomes a, it, it's almost like working out. You're like, I'm going to, not everyone wants to go to the gym, not everyone wants to do their workout and say, this is my workout. I'm going to go and I'm going to. Sometimes I even say start with silly small things. Like you go to the market, the grocery store, and you actually say to the, the cashier, like, how's your day been? And they're like, oh, they're usually be quite surprised. <laughs> like, oh, my day's been okay. Okay, great. Are you enjoying the holiday season? They're safe people because that whole interaction is going to take two minutes. Mm. You get in, you get out, but you got to flex that sort of social muscle. There's lots of ways you can do it in low-stakes settings. Mm, I think that's really, yeah, mm -hmm. the low-stakes settings. Mm -hmm. And I love that you have a game plan. I'm, that's exactly what I'm all about mm -hmm. because I can't get out of my mm -hmm. own head very often. Mm -hmm. So it's like I need a game plan. So just mm -hmm. like you said, it's like, okay, I know there's going to be one safe person there. Mm -hmm. I know there's going to be a view that if mm -hmm. I get over-anxious... I like looking at I it. I like looking at it. Mm -hmm. I've given myself permission mm -hmm. to be able to leave mm -hmm. absolutely in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. You don't have to stay. Mm -hmm. Like that is so beautiful mm -hmm. to allow people because you're 100% right. Many of us can't, don't want to go to a certain... Mm -hmm. And then when you're there, you're like, oh my God, this, mm -hmm. is, this was great. Mm -hmm. And what was I worried about? Right. Because mm -hmm. you get in your own head. Yep, that's right.
That's right. And, you know, again, if you're 20 minutes in, you're like, this is horrible. Get up, leave. <laughs> and then you learn and say, what was so horrible? Did you push yourself too fast on that night? Were mm. there people there that were making you uncomfortable? Was it all couples and you were the only person alone? Mm. So that means next time, assess if that kind of event you go to maybe needs to be more of a mixed crowd. Are you, no, don't, are you not as good at night? Maybe a social event would be better for you during the day. Mm. Like, pay attention. Again, this is where you're not doing this in a vacuum writing things down. Journaling is not just, today I had eggs for breakfast and I feel sad. That's not it at all. Mm. It's really looking at these accumulated experiences and saying, tonight I went to a get-together, I didn't want to go, but then that one person who was talking about their trip to Antarctica that I've always wanted to take, that actually ended up being, I learned so much from that person, and it was really nice to talk to somebody and actually not feel scared. That's a baby step. So it could be even things like, um, uh, make, a, make a note in a journal of a successful social experience you had that day. Mm. Just one. I greeted the, post, the, the person delivering the mail and um, asked them if they're having a good day. I went to my sister's house and I met her neighbor and we had a great 20-minute conversation. Mm. Um, I, we, I was in the office, was one of our first days not remote, and I actually went in and was able to catch up with the receptionist. It could be the biggest or smallest things, but you can see that, like, okay, I'm not this barbed wire person. Mm. I actually am kind of in the world, but I also am continuing to keep myself safe. But I think it's easy for a person to say, oh, I'm so closed off to the world. I'm like, no, you talk to the post person, you talk to your sister's friend, you talk to the receptionist at work. It's a process. So I think sometimes when you can see that accumulated progress, like I actually did talk to someone every day. I did have a nice conversation every day where I wasn't totally on guard. You start to realize that you, you're not, you don't have to pathologize yourself mm. as this closed off, untrusting person. But it's the, um, instead of calling it untrusting, maybe we can use words like wise or being mm. willing to honor my instincts or acknowledge red flags. I mean, I'm the first person, Lisa, who will be willing to leave a dinner party if I'm offended by people's antagonism. Like, And it's been a long time since we've had those gatherings, but I will say, something, oh, you know what, I'm so sorry, and I'll make up a white lie. Like, I have a call from someone, or I've got a jump, or I'm having a stomach ache, to get myself out. Like, that's something for me in the years after different episodes of narcissistic mm -hmm. abuse to give say you're allowed to set the boundary to get out i'm not good like to give you a personal example i'm not good at setting direct boundaries with a person but i am good at pulling myself out of unsafe situations mm -hmm. and so that's where i practice my boundary setting and then over time i've gotten a little bit better at setting it with other people directly but that's still more of a challenge so at least i'm learning to say okay romney you may not be able to like boom, set this line in the sand with this person, but that doesn't mean you have to sit here quietly and endure an uncomfortable situation. You can give yourself permission to leave, and it ain't your job to school that person anyhow. Ooh, love that, because that's the thing, like we just <clears throat> we get in our own heads, well, mm -hmm. I can't do this, mm -hmm. oh, I can't leave, I can't yeah. defend this person. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, because like, <laughs> When you're just like, yeah, and I'll just tell a little white lie. Like, I love how mm -hmm. you're just like, look, mm -hmm. if I'm, if this is toxic, I will get out of it, out. even if I have to do the little lie. And I don't want to hurt someone. Like, I don't want to say, I hate your friends, and that's why I'm leaving your dinner yeah, party. Yeah, that's Because that's the truth, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You know, these are the most horrible people I've ever met. Mm -hmm. Rather, it's to say, oh, I, I mean, again, as a psychologist, you always have an out. Like, I'm so sorry. I have this client. It's having this emergency, and I really want to go deal with this. Or my child needs why? me. You know, and then uh, some, to me feel less guilty, I'll call my kid on the way home. Like, how are you doing? Like, why are you calling us? You're supposed to be at dinner. But um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to because I think that 
to me the alternative to say I think your friends are hateful people not great <laughs> and then next time you. they invite me to that party and those people will be there I'll just say no from mm. the jump you know again honoring that boundary for myself instead of saying I'm gonna white knuckle this and show up to something I, that I know will not feel good yeah oh, I love that I love how you set boundaries and you're just so clear it's so beautiful um, one thing I heard you talk about that I really want to go into is revenge <laughs> so once you've left a relationship Talk about revenge. Yeah, it's so revenge to me is not meant to be like, I'm going to stalk you, I'm going to publicly humiliate you, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to set you up. To, no, it's, I am not a fan of vindictive revenge. Mm -hmm. I am a fan of revenge through you succeeding as well as you can. And that doesn't mean you have to go and start your own company or you have to go and save the world. It could literally be that your revenge is you found your bliss, you found your happiness, you found your rhythm, you got the cat you always wanted, or the dog you always wanted, or mm. took the night class you always wanted. To me, revenge is you taking yourself back. Because what the narcissist wants to see, either A, they don't care what happens to you, or B, they'd like to see that, because you know, a lot of people do after narcissistic relationships, especially on social media, they'll be like, Ah, uh, you know, it, it sure is hard to spend Saturday night alone. Like, they'll be, they'll, the people leaving those relationships will sometimes sort of like, sort of in an unskilled way, be like, is there anybody out there? And I'll say, either don't post anything at all, or if you feel the need to post something, say like, I'm so excited because I'm going to be watching my favorite movie tonight, or, you know, I just watched this show and would love, you know, like, you're in your life. Mm -hmm. And... And that sometimes that revenge does come through you succeeding brilliantly. But it has to be something for you. If you can think of revenge as you being your best self, that shuts everybody down. So it's not about the other person. Not, it literally about is about you. It's about you. Yeah. That's how you get it. And so it's a very... Because I always say to a person, you want to stick it to a narcissist? Succeed. <laughs> That's it. You stuck it to them. Because now their whole narrative is you're a loser mm. and the only way anything's going to happen is if you stick close to me or in fact I'm getting rid of you because you're a loser, right? That's their, there's this contemptuous like pushing people away. But narcissistic people are very interested in successful people. Mm. So if you become successful, now they can't have you anymore. There's a little bit of revenge there. I mean, I can't tell you how many people when I set out to start my own business, don't be silly. Who leaves academia? That's ridiculous. What are you doing? Worked out. God, I love that. And like one of my favorite quotes is um, the best revenge is unmitigated success. Yes. Now, whether it's success in yourself. Exactly. But it's so true yeah. in the sense of I used to think about my ex and be like, I'm going to show him. Yes, but it, but no. it was very toxic, mm -hmm. right? It was the uh, it no. was dark energy um, until I was like, you know what? And other people have definitely stabbed me in the back and the people that have not necessarily in a relationship but have very much done me wrong and they know it and I know it there's no secret they definitely stabbed me in the back very openly and I was so angry so normal. livid that's normal and then in that moment though like after like a day later I was like okay I know this anger doesn't actually serve me and putting it towards them actually doesn't serve me to get better and only actually fuels them because they know they got to me. Mm -hmm. 
And mm -hmm. so now, actually, my mm -hmm. reaction is exactly what exactly. they want. Exactly. So it's the anti-revenge. Yes. It's, <laughs> uh, yes. Like, you're literally saying, you know, you're like... You're serving it up on yeah. a platter to them. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in that, I, tr I then had to work on myself of letting go with the, of the dark energy, but actually leaving just enough... Oh, heck yeah. ...to push myself to be freaking mm -hmm. unstoppable. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I, I've, t I've, tell I've told this story. There was once somebody I had work with super narcissistic person, very disrespectful, very unkind. And I, I talked about this, I, th I think, in a video, too. Basically, the person was, you know, th their, their take on me was, I had entered a, a position, you know, after graduate school, and I wasn't done with what's called my dissertation. It's like our big final piece of work to get our doctorate. It's a pretty monstrously large, demanding piece of work. It you, can sometimes take years. And so, I took this position and he said, and he's like, oh, so when are you going to get your dissertation done? And I'm like, oh, I hope to get it done by January. And he's like, that's a joke. There's no way someone like you is going to get it done by January. I was like, mean? So, and he was such a mean guy. And he was mean to everyone, but it was such a mean thing. Lisa, I said, I don't care if I don't sleep for the next four months. I am getting that dissertation done. January 17th of that year, I defended that dissertation. It was a brilliant defense. It went swimmingly. I had the most amazing committee of people who, who evaluated my dissertation. And then on January 18th, I went into work. And he's like, oh, hey, Romney. I'm like, that's Dr. Devasala bitch. I kind of got in trouble for saying bitch more, more conservative time. But I, oh, hell no. I was not going to let that man. I, I, and you know what? In a sick, twisted way, he did me a favor because I, it, it lit a fire under me. And I think every time someone told me no for the longest time, I internalized that into my identity. You're a loser. You're a nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. You're no good. You're not enough. That's the messaging of my whole life. There was a turning point for me. I think the accumulation of narcissistic abuse got too much. I thought, how dare you? And I think things had to happen in my life. I had my children, like, I think major, and in some ways having two daughters mm -hmm. really pushed me to become like, you know, like Wonder Woman, basically. I'm like, you know what? I now have to defend myself, not for me, but for them. And for them, I'll always take the fight. And so I think that emboldened me in a certain way. But I'll tell you that so many people, so many, especially narcissistic people, you can't do that or you're not going to be able to pull that off or that's ridiculous. And so then it just became sit down, put your head down, get it done. Mm -hmm. And and then I get lost in the project. It's, I stopped becoming about the revenge. When I was deep in that dissertation, I wasn't thinking like, I'll show him, I'll show him, I'll show him. I was like, now I'm in it. And the process carried me. And then I was done. You know, That's what I was going to say, actually. Where is that fine line and the difference between you're doing it just to get revenge mm -hmm. yeah. versus you're actually using it as fuel to get the life you want? It won't work for revenge because after a week, you'll burn out. Ah, okay. Yeah, you have to want it. You have to want so it. So the thing got you started. It gave you the push yes. to be like, this is your deadline. Yeah, and then you're in. And then you're in. Because if then, it's something you don't mm. want to do, it's not going to work, Lisa. It's not going to work. Like I said, it can't be linked to outcome. It can't be, I'm going to write a book and it's going to be a bestseller. I'm like, forget the bestseller part. Get the words onto the paper. That's it. That's, that's a book. The bestseller part does not make a book. A book makes a book. Mm. Oh, God, I love that. And then... So going down just like to put a cap on the revenge thing, so let's say, um, or how do you know then when you need to stop focusing on the things that they've said to you in the past mm -hmm. and kind of like let go because 
it seems like holding on to that yeah. to keep trying to prove it to themselves, yeah. even if it's something that you want, right. can just keep getting toxic and hold on to right. the wound. That's right. So I think that it is to the, the idea of getting, like the revenge being the success, is that you were told for so long you can't, you won't, you don't have the ability, you're too dumb. The best way to break out of that mindset is to actually do something. It's something called self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is this idea that we believe we can do something. So most of us have self-efficacy for simple things, like we know how to boil water, we know how to brush our teeth, right? So as we level up to things, mm. self-efficacy, like can I run a mile? Mm. Can I, um, you know, can I write a dissertation? Can I write a book? Mm. Can I make this deadline? Can I finish this degree? Um, you know, can I bake a pie? I mean, it's that. can I pre prepare a dinner for four people? All of those things, if you have self-efficacy, you believe you can do it, you can do it. You'll do it. It may, it may not, someone else may not think it's a great dinner, but you believe you've made dinner, so you'll do it again. Self-efficacy is a call to action. So that's why it's important we do things, mm -hmm. because sometimes we're like, I don't know how to do that. Then we do it. We're like, that wasn't so <laughs> bad. Now I've got efficacy for that, right? So that's a big part of if the narcissistic person lays down the gauntlet and is mean to you and says you can't do it, then you do it and you're like, I can do this, you're efficacy building. Now I understand mm -hmm. what you're saying is the holding on to it. I think things like the efficacy building, having experiences, um, succeeding in whatever ways you're succeeding, even if it just means getting it done, I do believe that that starts, you start caring less about the narcissist and you're like, oh, I can do this thing and you get more focused on the doing. It, I tell people all the time, my goal for everybody in healing from narcissistic abuse is indifference. I'm not looking for forgiveness. I'm not looking for you to become friends. I don't even think that's a good idea. Indifference. You just don't care. You don't care if they live. You don't care if they die. You don't think it, you care if they succeed. You don't care if they fail. You don't care if they're sick. You don't care if they're well. You don't care. They're just and so when somebody comes up and says, you're not going to believe it, such and such is sick, you're like, you might be almost like, you know you've come past this where you're like, oh, okay. Um, you Maybe you'll say like, oh, that's a shame, they've got kids. Mm -hmm. But you're saying it the same way you would if you read a newspaper article like, what a shame, this lady is sick and she has kids. The same level of indifference. Like you're sad, like that's a sad story, but that lady in the paper is a stranger to you. So you'd have the same level of reaction. That indifference to me, when I see it in people, I'm like, my job here is done. You got it.